Okay, we are live, and welcome to the John Riley Project. And boy, we have a guest today here in the uh, JRP Podcast Studio, back for the second return visit, third time on the podcast. Correct. I think we had to do a a, a Zoom we interview did, by because it was during the the heat of COVID. Yeah, we did. Um, but Pete Murray, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, John. This is awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. This is this is great. It's a great service to the community. Right on. So uh, thanks for for coming on board here, and uh, just really looking forward to kind of catching up and learning more about your campaign for judge. And yes, I mean the are. election's coming up soon, right? Really soon. Really soon. Mail in ballots which everyone will receive mm-hmm. by the new law, they will appear May 9th or 10th will be in your mailbox. So do the numbers. It's about two weeks away. Okay. Wow. So, you know, I, uh, I had this. I got this in the mail. Yeah. But uh, you're not in here. This, I think, is just some of the state positions, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Those are the state positions. You'll get uh, your actual ballot. Uh, I would assume the county uh, pamphlet will be sent either in the same packet or at the same time. But there will be a county pamphlet that will have all the uh, candidates who are running in every seat that will appear on your ballot. Okay. should be in that county. This is uh, the, the larger statewide ballot. Okay, understood. Or, or the statewide issues that are in that first uh, pamphlet. But it's June 7th, so I see the date. June yeah. 7th is the primary, and like I said, we're actually, you know, I'm learning this stuff on the politics side, uh, we're treating May 10th as kind of really end date because the expectation, who knows if this is accurate or not, is that the election will be essentially over by the middle of May. Now, we won't be counted, but most people will have received their ballot and done whatever they're going to do yeah. with it. By roughly the middle of May, maybe some hold on to actually deliver it on June 7th to the voting uh, polling places. Others will mail them in. Um, but those decisions will probably be made by the middle of May. So uh, time is running short. Right. I think it's like three quarters of voters are mail-in or absentee or or it's actually probably more. Right. Now that they're mailing ballots to everybody. Yeah, right? Every single that's the new law that, you know, they did that during covid and now they've made it permanent. So every single voter will see receive their ballot in their mailbox. OK. OK. So we are doing this as a live stream. That means that our our viewers and listeners online can share comments and questions on YouTube or Facebook. Just type them in. We'll see them up here on our screen. And and Pete, I'm sure we'll be happy to answer some of those. But. You know, before we kind of get into some of the, you know, the hotter issues of the day, you know, maybe you can just bring us up to speed on on your backstory, your history, your career and what's led you to this point. Sure. Um, well, you know, the I'm trying to get quicker at this. Um, I've got a, a fairly lengthy and uh, varied background, but uh it, it starts uh, coming out of New York, uh, New Jersey area where I was born, uh, went to college down at Duke University uh, on a Navy ROTC scholarship. Um, it was the only way I could afford to go to college. Um, my parents, uh, maybe even to go back further, I'm very proud of this, by the way. My grandfather came over on a boat in 1910. I think I actually have his, uh, you know, the the docket that showed him on the boat uh, that he came over from Ireland with. And you had to register. He had $12 in his pocket. And uh, that's how the Murray story began in, in this uh, wonderful mm. country. So uh, he comes, you know, he's... Uh, Lands in New York, sleeps on a cousin's uh, floor as far as, you know, the stories go. Um, 
got married and my father was born. My father uh, was uh, never went beyond high school, uh, served in World War II um, and uh, landed at Normandy and fought at San Lo. And he's still alive to this day at 98 and a half years old. Really? Yeah, it's an incredible. So he's, uh, you know, he raised six kids. I was one of six. Uh, I was the first to go to college and graduate. Uh, two of my brothers um, eventually also got their college degrees. Um, you know, it, it came, we came from a, a very modest uh, upbringing. My dad, um, you know, provided for the six of us and that was it. So I, uh, I I knew I had to find a different path. I went to uh, – I accepted the ROTC scholarship, went to Duke, uh, was commissioned literally the day after graduation or maybe even the day before in the United States Navy. And two weeks later, I showed up at uh, flight school, which I had been selected for. So I uh, finished flight school a year later, flew for the Navy eight years uh, and decided it was uh, that I might follow that dream I had as a high school kid and actually try to go to law school after all. So I left the Navy and went back east. Uh, I was fortunate enough to get into Duke uh, University School of Law, where I attended. And uh, um, after that, I had the opportunity to come out here with a major international law firm. Uh, they really wanted me in the L.A. office. I cut a deal saying I'd really rather be back in that place I found in the Navy, namely San Diego. So they brought me to, they let me come to San Diego, um, practice there for two years in business litigation. Uh, after a couple of years, I knew I needed to be on my feet a bit more. So I uh, went over to the district attorney's office, fortunate enough to be hired and worked as a DA for 12 years, tried bunches, handled hundreds of cases, tried over 75 to 100 to Try in trial seventy five plus to jury, uh, on and on. Tried everything you can do in a DA's office, from DUIs and petty thefts to homicides and sexual assaults and child uh, abuse issues and, and and a lot of elder abuse. After twelve years, uh, I wanted to try something else. I guess I get antsy after a decade or so, and uh, I opened my own law practice and did that for eight years. And I practiced all over the state. Um, I did everything from some civil litigation, a lot of criminal litigation, uh, some defense work. Uh, I did. I represented cops quite a bit. Cops and uh, first other first responders uh, who were facing issues. Uh, did probate litigation, family law, juvenile law. <laughs> So I really covered all the bases. That's of some relevance here because uh, the courts are not just criminal courts. So they, uh, the San Diego County Superior Court has five main divisions, and I practiced in all five of them. Uh, so after those eight years, I got a call from the attorney general's office. Um, I was um, uh, not looking for a job, and I told them I wasn't looking for a job, but I knew someone there, and they said, look, uh, we really need someone with greater trial experience than what we have. I said, you know, look, I can talk to anybody. I did. And, well, when all was said and done, I decided that was a good move to make. So I went back to state ser or government service, this time for the state, California Attorney General. And I prosecuted, um, I did both civil prosecutions, but also criminal prosecutions. Most of it was criminal in major health care fraud and elder abuse. Uh, did that for 10 and a half years until December 31st of 2021. Uh, and decided it was time to move on. See, there's that decade thing again, yeah, I guess. Right? Uh, and I was literally putting together uh, with uh, a, you know, a plan with this law firm that I'm now currently with um, 
through the month of January of this year. And the firm is Cajun Miles, primarily a family law uh, outfit. Uh, but they were looking for someone to come in who had the trial experience that could work with their lawyers in strategizing, preparing for courtroom work, you know, helping them with a lot of the skills I'd picked up over all these years and evidence code and court procedures and really just being in a courtroom. Um, and I thought that sounded like a great idea and something I'd really like to do, work with younger lawyers, um, you know, more inexperienced lawyers uh, and, and kind of develop with them. So I literally was starting that. And on January 31st of this year, I got a call from a judge in the Superior Court, Judge Joe Brannigan, been on the bench about 20 years, I've known him for 25 years. Judge Joe asked me if I would consider running. I said, uh, no, there's an open seat that I knew of. Uh, there's one other open. There's now two, but one open seat. I knew that uh, a gentleman, Mike Murphy, was already <laughs> positioning himself. I said, Judge, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm starting this new position. Uh, it's really exciting to me. We're going to expand some practice areas, and we can talk about that a little bit later of, of some things that I was that we're working on. Uh, but Judge Joe, as everyone calls him, says, um, well, Pete, what if another seat opened? And I said, you know, Judge, I, I'm not aware of one. I've talked to the presiding judge, and I know that it looks like that's the only person who's retiring in that window or leaving in the window. It was a judge who uh, got sent to the federal court. And Judge Joe said, well, what if my seat opened? Oh. And I said, what? He said, Pete, tomorrow is the day we need to file. And I'm going to go in and tell them I'm not filing. I'm going to retire, and I want you to run for my seat. And I will back you. I will endorse you. I'll be your number one campaigner. And, of course, I could not say no to that. Um, and I could this not is on the deadline day, by the way. Well, this was the day that the judges could first file. Okay. And so on that same day, on that night, I had a discussion with Ann, my wife, and I said – are you ready to try this again? Because as you know, I, I did run before. I, again, up until that time, wasn't even on my radar. And she, God bless her, she's 100% behind me. She said, let's let's do it. And, um, you know, there's really two reasons I, I said yes. First of it is I think the world of Judge Brannigan, he is highly respected in the court, has had an incredible career. Side note, he's an ex-Army guy. I'm a Navy guy. Navy guys will help the Army out whenever they need it. So, <laughs> um, I, But the real reason is I know this, and maybe we'll talk about this later. Uh, I won't belabor it, but uh, these court are in crisis, largely because of the pandemic. Um, and uh, I'll give you, you know, one example. There are cases backed up that are really, really mind-numbing and scary to someone like me in the justice system in that I think it's on the brink of, uh, of almost collapse. Maybe that's a little extreme for me to say, but let me give you one example. There are, as last I knew, and this is very recent information, roughly 900 to 1,000 felony jury trials, never mind uh, felony criminal jury trials, never mind civil cases, never mind misdemeanor cases, 900 to 1,000 uh, felony jury trials pending right now. Wow. Today. Uh, the public defender 
who, side note, he's endorsed me as well. So I have both, you know, I've tried to cover the bases in my outreach, but I've talked with him. Randy Mize is his name. He is the public defender for the county of San Diego. And he told me that, you know, they're estimating in the new fiscal year coming up in June to get out about 150 so trials of those done. So do the numbers. We, you know, how are we going to clear these cases? Um, I don't have those solutions. If I did, I'd be in a different position. What I do have is an ability to come in, get to work in any one of the court positions that they may need me tomorrow. And, and I, with that understanding, I could not say no. It would be a lot easier to simply stay with chief trial counsel. And if this doesn't work out, that's where I'll be. Um, make some decent money. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's not what I'm about. I, I'm not looking for a retirement. I'm well past the point that it'll really count for me. Um, I'm not looking for a promotion. I just see a need in the just in the criminal in the, the justice system overall that I think I can help. And I couldn't say no. So is the backlog because of the pandemic, because they couldn't have the trials or they were doing them remotely and it just slowed down the process? Yeah, it's uh, mostly the first, which is they couldn't have them for a very long time. Uh, the courts went essentially dark, starting with the advent of the COVID, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, they stayed dark. Um, you know, I, I I wasn't there, so I, I wasn't administering. You know, I don't know what was happening in the administration of the courts. I, I, I followed it in the official, you know, the presiding judge would have, uh, you know, through the county bar would have periodic meetings, uh, meetings to just kind of update everyone where they're at. Um, do I think there, you know, we could have done some more. I'll give you an example. I've, I've talked at some length to the chief judge of the federal court across the street, which is Judge Dana Sabra, happens to be the husband of the district attorney, Summer Stephan. Um, quite the power couple. Yeah, really. Um, but Judge Sabra told me at an event that I was at in December, uh, so I wasn't looking at running at all. He, he I, I asked him about you know, how the federal court was doing. Now, recognize the Southern District here that he oversees um, in the Southern District of California, the federal district court, uh, is one of the most impacted courts in the country uh, for a lot of reasons, the border, immigration, drugs, and so forth, but and, uh, and all the other things that the U.S. attorney or that the federal court handles. So it's, it's not like it's a sleepy court. They are jammed. But he told me he brought in Wilma Wooten, uh, who is the uh, public health director, and said, look, we need to open these courts. And this was a few months down the road. So what do we need to do is what he asked her. And um, they worked on a plan and set up these federal courts to start trying cases again. And as of December, he was telling me that they essentially have no backlog. So, you know, I don't know what more we could have done. I wasn't there. But I do know that we've got a crisis situation that was largely, I mean, of course, it was driven by the pandemic when they mm -hmm. couldn't have it. The attempt to do Zoom trials, um, you know, uh, the Zoom I think, and I was asked this in, I think, the Union Tribune uh, interview, or, or at least the questions they asked, uh, whether I thought that Zoom, you know, the whether or MS Teams is what they use, uh, will should stick around. I think it absolutely should. It, it, it represents efficiency for the courts, especially in the more routine matters. There's a lot of things that can be done and done quickly, which is essential. It's essential we be even more efficient now. 
but trials, you know, just don't work very well in in the Zoom online mode. Uh, I mean, you, you people have done them uh, in other parts of the country. We, I know, we've done. I think we've done some here. We, um, <coughs> but they're 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 just pose so many more issues, and uh, they're just uh, you know, and, and you get beyond just the logistical issues of you know we talk about the need for the interplay in, in a in a trial of the lawyers with the witnesses and how the juries perceive that, and when you take it out of the courtroom and put it on a screen that people are only looking at, um, it just loses something. It loses that confrontation that we always talk about, that 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 ability for uh, both the lawyers but certainly the jurors to, to really assess the demeanor of witnesses as they testify, which is critical. I mean, one could say it's not really a fair trial if it's not in person because the – the prosecution and the defense can't make their case exactly. as effectively, both sides. Right? I, I would think not. Yeah. Um, you know, I won't say that um, those that have done trials through, you know, the Internet, through Zoom or MS Teams or whatever, uh, were they unfair? I, I, I don't think so. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I just know it loses something. Yeah. And and then when you take jurors and take them out of the courtroom and put them on computer screens, what, what at home? And I mean, there's multiple stories of, you know, a juror's phone is ringing or the dog is bar. I mean, these things don't happen in the courtroom. And uh, you, you just I, I think we have found I can't speak for everyone. I, I think we have found that juries, uh, jury trials just don't work uh, online. They have to be in person. Yeah. So, um, well, what about if there are, let's say, a thousand trials in backlog? Well, where are those thousand accused criminals? Are they being held in jail for longer than they really should be because of the backlog? Or maybe some are out on bail, right? Yeah. Well, some are out on bail. Most are being probably held. Well, a good, I don't know the, the, the strict answer to that. I'm guessing a big bulk of them are in jail because these are not, you know, low-level crimes. Why do I say that? Most of the low-level ones have been released on zero bail. We can talk about that and how that has come to pass, uh, you know, or been released with various restrictions, and they're out in the community pending uh, their cases. The ones that we're most worried about are those who are sitting in custody, and these are significant and serious crimes. That's why they're in custody. Um, And those of that 900 number, I don't know, but I'm guessing quite a large amount of those are very serious cases. And those people are sitting in jail now, depending on which side you may go, my God, that's a travesty because these people are not convicted of anything. Right. And others would say, well, they're all criminals. (laughs) You know, I'm like, well, no, they're not until we prove that. Right. And, you know, if the, if the criminal justice system stands for anything, it is that everyone has an entitlement to be heard by a jury of their peers and to present their case and to hear the evidence against them and then get it played out. That's what a trial is. Um, the delay in all of that is by any definition delaying 
individuals' rights. There's just no way around Because we all have a right to a speedy trial, as they say, right? Absolutely. And the only reason that isn't happening is we have these emergency orders handed down by the California Supreme Court that apply to all the trial courts throughout the state. And um, which were necessary for the pandemic. That's the only way we could continue push these cases off. Uh, but those are about to end. Those emergency orders. Uh, some would think, why didn't they end already? Um, mm-hmm. That's up for the chief justice and the governor and others to figure out. You know, to answer. But the short answer to all of that is they're about to end. And if we can't try nine hundred cases. As we said, we're basically set up to try to do 150 in the coming year. What's going to happen? Yeah, because that's not enough. I mean, it's because that you, it's going to take you, what, six years to get through it all. To get through that. Plus, you've got some that are still flowing in. And co- crime keeps happening, as we yeah. know. So wow. we're, we're facing – and that's when I talk about these are potentially crisis levels. And that's just the criminal courts. I'll give you one other example. Family law court. And I I use this because I think it's maybe strikes home to most people. People are like, ah, criminals, I don't commit a crime. Okay, well, I hope you never do and never have to face uh, what faces someone in a criminal courtroom. But family law, um, I'll give you one example. I I know of a case uh, because the firm I'm with handles family law matters. I won't tell you anything specific about the case, but it is a child custody issue. And that's contested. And... um, and there's a what we call a DVTRO, a domestic violence temporary restraining order mm. that has been asked for by one spouse. And they and that's being contested by the other spouse. You know, getting a temporary restraining order for domestic violence slapped on you is a serious thing. Uh, so the other side is contesting it. I know nothing about the facts, so whether it's righteous or not. Um, but the court in I think it's out of South Bay um, has said now a contested hearing date to hear the facts of um, from both sides and that date is january of 2023 wow yeah and so when i hear things like that i and, and that's not the court's right i'm sure it's that's what the first opening we have um so what happens in that period this is obviously a tense situation for a family who are fighting over both their marital dissolution and their child custody and there are serious allegations being displayed, and we're not going to get it heard for almost a year. I, that's a domestic violence case waiting to happen in the criminal courts, it strikes for sure. me. For um, sure. And so the need to get people into the courtroom to resolve their, to have their matters heard and resolved is the very foundation of the, our, our justice system. And if we can't do that, we're going to lose that very foundation. And that, that, that worries me. And it's exactly why I'm running. Again, I, there's some, we have a great bench here in San Diego. Make no mistake about it. A lot of dedicated judges who are working their tail off. Um, so I can't solve those problems. We have a great presiding judge and assistant presiding judge who are wrestling with these issues, I'm sure. What I think I can, I can offer is a help because I have all that experience um, that, I can be, that can be brought to bear. And that's the simple reason why I'm running. Good for you because there is a problem. You want to get out there and help solve it, bring your experience to the table. Now, just on a little bit of a tangent, but – can the court system like increase their bandwidth by having more judges and more trials and just to get through this backlog? Uh, short answer, they, they're sort of trying to do that. And uh, uh, in answer to more judges, no. The only way 
more judges come in is if the legislature funds new judgeships. Well, that hasn't happened as far as I know. I don't think it's happened in my career. I mean, San Diego has the same number of judicial seats that it had when I started 30 years ago. Well, the population has um, doubled, maybe tripled since and, then. And it, it's all about funding. And the courts are notoriously underfunded. They don't have a great political arm to, you know, to lobby for themselves. Um, I'm sure, you know, the chief justice up there in Sacramento does what she can. But uh, let's face it, um, it doesn't get, you know, the the attention and the funding that it might need. We've there's a lot of issues there. I mean, should courthouse have been constructed and so forth and so on? I don't know. But the the plain and simple fact is, for, for example, Riverside is even more impacted than we are. They have actually gotten new judgeships in the last several years. I, I don't remember exactly when, but I know they've actually added some. San Diego hasn't, and I don't think there's any prospects for any being added anytime soon. So what we do need is all of these seats that are available to be filled. And there have been retirements and there are new retirements occurring every day. Um, I don't I, I the governor just appointed four new judges to fill open seats, people who've retired and left midterm. So their seat is not up for election. So the appointments fill that seat until the end of that term. Um, and with those four appointments, I still think we have about 10 seats open. Wow. Waiting to be appointed. And that's up with the governor's office to it's up to them. Right. The difference is when someone retires like Judge Joe Brannigan by not filing for their new term, that seat goes up for election. And that's why this right now there are 40, I think it's 46 judges up for reelection in this term. Only two of them are con- are contested because all of those sitting judges, the other 44, no one ran it, you know, filed to run against them. And so they were deemed elected at the close of the filing period. And you'll never see their names on the ballot. They are they will they've been elected to a new six year term. The two open seats in in the case of Judge Oda, who was elevated to the federal court, her seat, because it was not filled, uh, given the nature of how you know she left, that went to election. And that's one of the seats contested. And then Judge Joe Brannigan, when he decided not to file there was a window where his seat would be would go up for election if people filed. And, of course, I filed the day after he called me and said, yes, sir, I'll take it on. And and so we did. And uh, so there's only two contested judicial seats. It's the only two you'll see on your ballot. OK. Yeah. So uh, but getting back to your question, uh, which is that's the only way to is to fill our our legislature approved number. And even now we have open seats. Um, and, uh, will it, what they're doing, there's a lot of creative work going on. They've asked some of the retired judges to come back and they can sit as, you know, uh, as a, in a retired judge program. So there are ways to help that. It, it's not going to clear the numbers we're thinking about. It helps. And I'm sure there's a lot of really smart things going on, uh, with the administration of our court, San Diego Superior Court, the presiding judge and assistant presiding, to try to work through these. But um, what I know is and what I want to be is an asset to say, I can go wherever you need me. Um, I'm not just a deputy DA. Okay, side note, there's a deputy DA, a young deputy DA running against me. Um, 
who is, um, you know, he's done nothing but criminal prosecution, which is all good. I've, you know, I won't demean that because I have that in my background. <laughs> I've just added 18 more years of other stuff on top of it. Um, I want to be the asset to say, I can go to work tomorrow in any one of those courts. You need me in juvenile court, I'm ready to go. You need me in family law, I'm ready to go. Uh, and I think that represents an asset to the court. To, to because it. you have experience in all of those categories. In, in all of them. And and a lot of experience. That's another side of, um, you know, all of this is that I like to see my judges with a lot of experience. You know, you're making decisions. Judges are making decisions every single day. They're impacting people's lives. <laughs> and, you know, you'll, when I go out on the campaign trail, I spend a lot of time trying to educate, telling people how important this job is. I mean, they're making decisions. They're not a, in a legislative body. In other words, with a group, not a city council, all alone. You're making decisions every day impacting numbers of lives. And um, I want to see someone who has the experience to be brought to bear uh, on that. And it's it's both a professional experience, like I've been talking about, but also life experience. I mean, I've been a practicing lawyer for 31 years. I'm an ex-Navy pilot. Um, you know, the, even why I bring up my background, that's all of who I am. And that's the kind of experience that can be brought to bear in dealing with people's lives and recognizing I'm impacting these lives every day. And, um, you know, I, uh, when I tried all those cases, mostly as a DA and in my private practice and as an AG, you know, I'm very proud to say I, I never I almost took this for granted. I have never had a case ever overturned on appeal, not one. Mm. Um, and I've never had even a hint of any impropriety, any, you know, improper conduct, et cetera. Um, I take that for granted because I think that's what's expected of me. Um, I, I'm not going to get there, but just trust me to say hey, or, or suffice it to say that not every opponent of mine can say that. Um, and, you know, I'll leave it to whoever wants to research it. It's easy enough to find, um, you know, when I will say and why that matters. It's not just some holier than thou. Ooh, I've never been overturned on appeal. Understand that when we try a case, there are rules that need to be followed and prosecutors are held to follow those rules. And if you don't, it can there's a reason why, because we're now depriving people of their fundamental constitutional rights when we do things wrong as a prosecutor. And if you don't follow those rules, you are, by definition, depriving someone of those rights. And if you get it so wrong that an appellate court overturns you because of your actions and sends it back, guess what? Three years, four years later, that whole case is now coming back to the courthouse to be retried again. And that means the cops are coming back to, re, you know, retestify four years later after all the cases they've done, all the money that's being spent to retry a case that shouldn't have happened. It should have been done right the first time. It is up to prosecutors to make sure it's done right. We call it protect, uh, perfect the record. You need to be aware of that. And quite frankly, it's up to the judge to make sure those rules are followed. Uh, when that doesn't happen and cases get overturned on appeal, but when it doesn't happen, we, there's cost to it. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to make clear here. It's not just the most obvious. If you deprive someone of their fundamental constitutional rights, that should cause us all to take a back. Um, but it's in the most base sense. It's costing people's money. It's costing the people's money. Well, it seems like it's more than just money because 
if you have to retry a case, let's say four years later, the facts get a little fuzzier, right? By definition, we've always said uh, time is the ally of the defense. Uh, mm. Memories don't get better over time. Right. Uh, and the longer your case gets played out, uh, the more difficulties you're asking for as a prosecutor. Wow. And um, think about that with all these cases that are backed up. They, you know, these, these, you know, do witnesses die, disappear, forget? Yeah. 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 So anyway, let's, let's I kind of went off on a tangent. But to That's answer, okay. there's not an easy solution to clearing these cases. Uh, if I had it, I'd run down there and tell them it. I, I don't. But I, I know it means at a minimum we've got to get to work. Do we increase the amount of night night courts? Um, do we have judges cover multiple different departments. In other words, if you're family law in family law and you've finished the morning, don't have something in the afternoon, can you go in and pick up the load in criminal courts? Uh, you know, I, I'll be careful here. I hope to have some of these folks as colleagues, but uh, I won't want to, you know, suggest that they should be working more than they should. But on the other hand, this is a public service job. And if they tell me I need you to cover night courts, you know, three days a week, my answer is a good Navy guy is yes, sir. You got it. Well, I mean, as a judge, how many cases will you could you handle in parallel at the same time? I mean, that must be challenging to yeah. switch back and forth between the trials. You know, I would think it's less challenging, especially if you have a basis in the particular area. So in other words, if you're familiar with juvenile law, the juvenile court and the criminal court, because there's a lot of overlap, um, let's start with that, assuming you have that. Then it becomes just switching from one case to the other, um, which is really a skill I think a judge is going to have to have. Yeah. The, the civil courts alone, any one of them down there, they have an independent calendar with all their cases. I don't know the numbers, but I'm get guessing that on average they're handling 80 to 100 plus cases on their docket. And so every day when a motion's coming in, they've got to recage into a particular case and then move to the next one. I mean, the, the it's a difficult job. That's but incredible. I mean, that's a lot to to switch gears on. It's a lot to switch gears on and which is why you know, it's it's not only an important job, it's important we put the right people there who yeah. are ready to take that on. Right. And um you know, I as I said, most of these judges are that I know work really hard. Um, but we're in crisis, and that means we may have to work harder. Amazing. Um, well, um, what I do want to do is I want to tell the audience here that if you're watching on the live stream, we're happy to take any questions or comments. You know, we're live streaming on both Facebook and YouTube. So if you have a question for Pete, um, you know, just type them in. We'll see them on the screen, and we'll do our best to respond. Yeah. But, but I've got some questions. Go so, for it. I'd, okay. I'll take my um, best. So – you know, here you know we, we live in the in the same community here up in North County. There's there's a there seems to be a lot more crime, property crimes in people's homes, break-ins, thefts. I'm just wondering what your perspective is on that. You know, what's causing this rise? Is, is it pandemic coming out of the pandemic, or what is it? And and why are we having so much trouble really prosecuting some of these folks? Yeah, it's. Uh that, boy, that's a large question. Uh, I mean, the broadest sense is why is crime up? Again, if I could answer that, I, I suspect I'd go be a professor at Harvard or or Duke. Um, but um, right. 
you know, I'm sure it spins out from the pandemic. Uh, there's a lot of psychological stress that people have been under and, and all of that. So we, we all know that. What has occurred, and, and you know, I've got to be careful as a, as a prospective judge. I'm subject to the same canon of, canon of ethics that any sitting judge is. So I cannot opine about a, a position or, or a, give any indication of how I might rule on, on a particular I understand. Case. So it, just that as a disclaimer. Um, but it is clear to me that we have taken some actions um, with regard to criminal justice in particular that I call the pendulum swing. You know, we I was there in the DA's office when we instituted three strikes um, from a reduction of crime level alone. I don't think anyone could deny that three strikes was effective. Now, on the other hand, we had some anomalous, and, and it was maybe far too common, of uh, results that just nobody in their right mind could live with. You know, an older gentleman who steals a bottle of liquor that costs 25 bucks, um, but he has serious robberies in his past, maybe many years ago. And he takes one bottle of liquor because it may be only a petty theft, but we call it petty with a prior. We did back then, which is if you have a theft offense before and you commit another theft, it's elevated to a felony. So now he has a felony with two serious felony priors. He's now looking at 25 years to life in prison. And that to me seems extreme. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, people need to be held accountable. But personally, I don't want to have a prison full of geriatric people that we're now paying for all their health care until they die. I mean, that just gets a little silly. So I felt there was probably a need over these years to kind of let's, let's get smarter on crime, not just tougher. Um, where we've gone recently is quite far the other way, which is cops are all liars and thieves and, and beating people up. And the criminal justice system is a mess. And, and you know, that I absolutely push back against. That's just not true. Um, cops are out there every day working their tails off in really dangerous situations. They're people. They make mistakes. They need to be held accountable when they make mistakes. Um, but to to talk about these notions of defunding the police or making police go away is asking for anarchy. And it's really almost silly on its face. So the more we've done that, the more we, you know, look, the people out in the community that care to prey on people, whether it be stealing things or, um, you know, perpetrating crimes against individuals, they may not have gone to law school. They may not have, you know, know the nuances of law. They know the pulse of what's going on in the streets. And when they know that in our new uh legislative enactments over the last several years that people who commit a crime by stealing from a store of less than $950, uh, it's a misdemeanor. And the, and the sheriff won't arrest people on a misdemeanor. Why? Because they bring them to the jail. They're going to be released on a zero bail uh, release immediately. So they're not going to get even put into the jail. So they cite them. And as far as these people care, great. Another piece of paper, throw it aside, and I'm going to go commit a crime again tomorrow. So there's no 
There's no, you know, we need both the carrot and the stick always. Um, you know, the carrot is let's help people who need problems, whether it be mental health, drug abuse, uh, you know, people uh, suffering from homelessness and commit crimes just to eat. I mean, there's a lot of things we need to do. Uh, but we also have to hold people accountable for committing crimes against the community. Right. And when we don't, and we then we get what we ask for. And I think that's what we're starting. What we have started to see is people feel uh, certain people feel they have a carte blanche to do whatever uh, that cops aren't responding. Um, it would not. I can't speak to the police uh, officers or deputy sheriffs out there, but I got to believe that you're called to a, a call, a domestic violence call or a theft call. I, you're going to want backup. Before you even show up, um, because the w- first thing you know, you show up, someone's got a handheld phone t- taking your picture on video and who knows where this could go. Um, I-, I think we've done a disservice by making the cops a little afraid of what they're going to face out in the streets instead of knowing we have their back, that we have their back as long as they're policing in the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, I listen to a certain I'm not going to give up his name because he was, you know, not, I don't think, official. But he's an assistant chief of a very big, one of of the largest police department in town. So, and as he said, look, no one is going to watch that uh, police officer kneel on a guy's neck for as long as he did and think that's okay. No decent police officer is ever going to accept that. Mm -hmm. He said, when I see that, I wanted to be able to go there and pull him off. And and that, I think, is what we have to understand. No one's accepting that. But the flip side of all the cops are bad and liars and trying to kill us is asking for anarchy. And the the people who will suffer the most are the communities of color where, you know, that crime will run rampant. And that's that's the ultimate inequity, in my mind, is if if all communities, including the communities of color and what we might call disadvantaged communities, can't have the safety of the community in the in the face of police enforcement, uh, then we've we've lost everything as a society. So. I'm rambling on. I don't no, mean no, to, good. but, uh, uh, you know, the the answer as to why has crime gone up, I think, is shortly because of things we've started taking for granted, which is that the cops are there to be part of the community and to be our safety. And when we vil- vilify them, um, then who are we going to turn to? I mean, when you have a crime or if someone commits a crime or, you know, look at the who is it? The Seattle mayor who was big behind that Mm -hmm. until they marched on her house (laughs) and then she called the police. Oh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, You know, so there's a lot that can be done, I think, better in policing. I'm not a policing expert by any stretch. I've just watched it as a prosecutor. Um, but crime is definitely going and it's a, up across the board. You know, murder rates are up. Gun, you, you know, gun uh, discharges and, you know, uh, gun offenses are up. And we all know thefts are up. I mean, these well, are they up because the pandemic year, everything was near zero or are they up compared to pre pandemic? No, they're up pre uh, over pre pandemic. OK, numbers I didn't as well. know that. Yeah. 
It's, you know, and, and some, you know, I don't want to have someone say, well, technically, um, you know, this crime, <laughs> right, I, yeah. I, I'm sure as a general rule, crime is up, not compared to the near zero or whatever was happening in, in the pandemic. We're talking pre-pandemic. I understand. Numbers are up. Um, you know, I think I, like for I, one example, murders. We haven't seen this level of murders in San Diego since, I think, uh, the, the 80s. Really? Yeah. Okay, I guess I wasn't paying much yeah. attention to that stuff. You know what? And for certain communities, we have the luxury to not be exposed to that so much. Okay, good. But, you know, I worry about the inner city communities. Um, they should be able to walk out of their house and not feel like they're going to get shot. Um, and we need police on the streets. You know, community-oriented policing is a term that's used and is not as widely accepted as we might think because it just makes infinite sense. Get cops who are familiar with the neighborhood, that get to know people, so that when you have a problem, you call Officer Smith, and they're they're there. Um, They are part of a partnership with the community, and I know they want to be, Um, and we need to make sure that happens. And when it does, I think we see crime go down. Um, because people, nobody wants to be victimized. Uh, no one wants their property stolen. I don't care how small it is. I mean, simple things that we go, oh, come on, you know, my car got broken into and they stole my, I'll date myself, my CDs or whatever. <laughs> um, but for the person who had that happen, it's fairly traumatic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what do you mean someone came in my driveway and helped herself into my car? I'm reading that even around this neighborhood. Right. Um, you know, the fact that someone literally climbed under my car and cut the uh, catalytic converter off. And, oh, my God, you know, what what world are we living in? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a whole combination of things. But part of it that can be corrected is is to stop vilifying the very people who we put in place to protect us against crime. And that's law enforcement. Right. Well, it's interesting because on there are some people that have almost a religious reverence of police officers. Yes. And then that they could do no wrong. Exactly. And then there are others that think the complete opposite. Exactly. But I think to your point in the Union Tribune interview article that I read, you said the pendulum is swinging both ways, but we just need to be smart about how we go about these problems. Right. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think a lot of it is trust building with police and having them as an integral part of the community. Right. Right. And, you know, it's again, I, I want to be careful going outside my lane here, but uh, I, I think a large part of it is training. Now, look, a police, their police are people. And I've represented cops in, in individually. Uh, when I had my private practice, I was, uh, you know, representing deputy sheriffs and deputy district attorney investigators when they got in trouble. And they're people. They make mistakes. Sometimes there are some people who shouldn't be wearing a uniform. They need to be identified and removed from the force. And, and I don't think there's a chief of police out there that wouldn't agree 100% with me. Of course we want them out. We don't need that. They they actually create a bad view of the rest of the department. So they need to do whatever they need to do to try to identify those, you know, and they are rare, but the, the rogue cop or the bad cop, wherever they are, the person who takes some perverse pleasure of lording over others with their authority, and I'm the police officer and, you know, likes to kick in doors and care not for the citizens that are out there. I mean, people like that need to be 
ousted. And I leave that to the law enforcement agencies to figure out how best to do that. Um, you know, we talked about this. You know, I go all the way back. It's no different. I, I flew, as you know, for the Navy. One of my tours, I flew for the SEAL teams. And I worked with the SEALs quite a bit. And there was discussion that, uh, you know, everyone thinks, oh, a SEAL is some this trained killer and commando man and, you know, flies out of trees and just executes people. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, they don't want people like that. They want people who are circumspect, you know, that have all the skills and then are circumspect about how they use them. Mm. And uh, it, it, it's no surprise that most of the enlisted SEALs are all college graduates. I mean, they are a very bright group. And I think you can apply that to the police department. Most of them are really sharp. You're going to find the rogue. They need to be identified and said, thank you, but go find someplace else. Um, beyond that, I'm sure there's a level of training. Um, there are things, you know, these are cops when they come in are pretty young, generally. Um and we need to increase training, perhaps, in many areas. Again, I leave that to law enforcement. So there are things that can be done to make police better. Um, but to go to the other side and literally do the throw them out, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And what are you left with? I mean, I'll yeah. tell you the notion of I like the idea of having some kind of and we have them now, these uh, pert teams, you know, response teams that, you know, respond to, you know, mental health crisis issues. Um, but you show me a mental health psychologist or psychiatrist that is fine with going out to the street to respond to someone who's literally decompressing and having an episode all by themselves without police support. And they're like, what do you, I'm not crazy. I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. And you know, that is one of the things I sort of hear, heard. I'm fine with, let's get a team. The, the police is there for safety and lets the mental health professionals try to, you know, reduce the situation down and see what we can do to this person so that they don't become a statistic and end up in the jail. Because I can assure you of this, um, I can't speak for him, but her now, uh, the acting sheriff, um, it, the last thing they want are people who are really mental health issues in the jail. And you'd be amazed how much that's, that's what our largest mental health treatment facility is right now is the, the San Diego County Sheriff's Jail. Hmm, that's and, not right. And it's not where yeah. it, it's not good for anyone. It's not helping them. It, it it it's it's a mess. And so we do need to address. And that's when I talk about being smart on crime. Let's understand what the issues are and and start to attack them appropriately. Again, these are much broader issues than me. Public policy stuff, but you know we need better uh, mental health treatment facilities. We need uh, better. Uh, vehicles to treat mental health because it's a huge part of the, our crime. Drugs. I, I mean, I remember a statistic, I'm guessing it's probably not far off, that of all the people in jail, 90% of them have a drug issue. And so if we can address people's drug issues and keep them out of the jail, my gosh, uh, I mean, we're going to make a lot of inroads. So uh, that's where we need to get. And we need to have that same smart approach to law enforcement. It is necessary and no surprise the very people who were talking about defund the police and all seem to be 
all of a sudden up to and including our president is no, we're not defunding the police yeah. <laughs> because we see what happens right. when we do that. Well, it's, some have said they were going to wanted to defund and yeah, they've, they've done a 180. They've done a 180 yeah. because they know. And, and as uh, a big supporter of mine, a uh, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of California, Bob Brewer, um, as he said to me, Pete, you know, what will turn things around from this and what is now, I believe, already having is crime. People... You know, we can all argue about things. Most people will tend to agree. I don't like crime and I don't want it (laughs) to occur and I don't want to be victimized. Mm -hmm. And the more it's starting to happen and destroy our streets. I mean, go to downtown San Diego. It's not the same town anymore. And um, we need to do things so that we can reduce the crime level, because if people can't be safe, then I don't know if anything else matters. Um, in our communities. I mean, maybe getting water and, and sewage are about the only things that come close. After after that, it's about safety, whether it be police or fire. Um, if we can't have safety, we we can't live in a community. So that's where we need to be smart. Um, and uh, I just I'm just thinking that there's a lot going on here because we just talked about the backlog in the court cases. Yes. Now we're talking about the increase of crime. Yes. So it's almost like whack-a-mole. So like if you are able to deploy more police to fight crime and fight it the right way. Right. You're going to create more court cases, which is going to make the backlog even worse. Right. Well, and that's assuming, and I would hope, maybe I'm a idealist, but I would I would hope that just having more police does not mean more cases in court. Maybe having more police means less crime. Ah, okay, that's a good less, call. Less cases in court. Uh, and when they do occur, we need to have the right solutions. You know, for all of these people, you know, we can get into this, this the, the what people like to call the zero bail uh, status, which is rules that were passed uh, and changing the bail schedule. It's not totally accurate, zero bail. But we have largely gone to zero bail on misdemeanors and low-level felonies, meaning people never go to jail. Um, but can we do things to say we're still going to hold you accountable? Oh, of course. So you, you may not go to jail, but I can put you on a device that's going to track you that make sure you come back. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then you are going to go to jail. Um, you know, we need to look at ways. And, and what we don't realize when we say, you know, zero bail, the answer is the law that was passed and it's based on a court case uh, said that, you know, people can't be held in jail simply because they can't afford bail. Mm-hmm. That's that's you know unconstitutional and unfair. It's a deprivation of their rights, and I agree with that. In its as so far as it goes, but what are we really saying is so? What does it mean you can't afford it? Is if you put on someone who's committing a theft, you know, of low level stealing that bottle of liquor, and they got a five thousand dollar you know, bail. You go, well, that's not very much. Well, for some of these people, it might be five million. It might as well be five million. Mm -hmm. They can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And do we really need that person in jail? That's what a judge can decide because the judge still has discretion. We don't hear this much. A judge has to find that I will not put you in, in jail or the only way I can put you in jail is if it is the least restrictive way to ensure two things. One, that you will come back, and two, that the community will remain safe or you will not victimize the community. And if I find that neither of those can be met by anything short of, you know, by anything but jail, then you're going to jail and you're going to stay there on a bail. But 
let's face it, most of these people, there are less restrictive ways. You know, we can require them to report in or to be on an electronic device in the new technology where we know where they are. So are we really worried? You know, again, we're not talking about people who are, you know, perpetrating crimes against children, you know, uh, child molesters and and rapists and so forth. Those people need to be taken out of the community. End of story. Um, And held out of there until their case is resolved. And if convicted, then they'll answer for it. Uh, but for the people that aren't really a threat to the community, then let's find ways to keep them out of a jail because it's not the sheriff's job to just house all this these people for well, us. I mean, I remember you brought up this point the last time you were here is that this is where a judge can use judgment. Yes. You know, and make the appropriate call rather than having their hands tied by some mandate from up above. Yeah, which is, you know, I, I think I got pushback on this once. I actually would argue for giving more discretion to judges. Um, the, the the prime example may be in the federal courts, which used to have the federal sentencing guidelines. They were actually federal sentencing directives. And there's countless numbers of cases. You've read them where a federal judge has said, look, I, I mean, I would not put you in prison, you know, federal correctional facility for as much time. But my hands are tied. I must follow these directives that mm-hmm. have come down. They've loosened that up, and that's why they're now guidelines. Uh, but that gives a judge discretion based on all kinds of factors to, to make the right call. And I argue that it is us, if I'm ever so fortunate to be there, a judge who should be held accountable. You make the call. And if you're messing it up, you're going to answer to the people at the next election. Or if they think strongly, then recall you. And I am... All for that. Bring it on. I mean, you know, I should be held accountable for my decisions. But in the same breath, give me the discretion to assess a case, to understand each individual and what is really going to solve the problem here. Uh, And don't tell me I have no choice but to release this person on one hand or no choice but to confine them when there is a better solution. And, you know, let's not only allow our judges the discretion to do that, but then hold them accountable for that. But And, you know, another question asked in the UT about, you know, cameras in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I speak that very broadly. I expect as a general rule, they should absolutely be allowed always. I mean, there are reasons, certain courts, juvenile courts, you know, a secu- you know, it's a private setting and it is not a public record, so no cameras are ever going to be in there. Uh, and then situations with a, you know, a rape victim. No, I'm not. You know, I would but not. Those are exceptions. Have, uh, exceptions. The but rule the, should be. The rule is this is an open court yes, rule. Yes. Everyone in the community. I, I've had people ask me all the time, Kat, I'd like to go see. I said, go walk in any courtroom. They're open. And if the bailiff asked you. You know, what's your business here? Your answer can be as simple as I'm just watching. And they'll say, oh, okay. Um, Too many people are intimidated, but it's our courts. Uh, Pet peeve of mine. It drives me nuts every time. And you can yell at me if I ever say it, if I'm so fortunate to make it to the bench, is I hope I never say what I've heard too many times in my courtroom. It is not my courtroom. It is not any judge's courtroom. It is the people's courtroom. The people own this courtroom. I'm just, as a judge, I would just be doing one of the jobs in there. An important one by any measure, but one of the jobs. And when we remember, it is, all of this is owned by the people. Three 
you know, preamble of the Constitution, it is we the people. Right. And is if we don't keep that first and foremost and at the forefront on everything we do, we, we then we're losing it. And so... Again, I'm probably no. This is good. Flipping well, off. But. Let's go. Let's go to the the. the you brought up the Constitution. Is I'm gonna switch gears a bit. Yeah. I remember you told me last time that you spend a, a, a certain portion of your time going out and talking to high school kids and teaching them about the. Uh, con- Are you still doing that? Uh, I haven't during COVID because it, oh, even yeah. in the last recent one, they wanted to still do it on Zoom. Uh, and then they asked if we could produce a video, and I had some other things going on, just a short video, and I would have loved to do it. Um, but uh, And I had some conflicts. I was still with the AG's office, Attorney General's office, and I was doing some stuff. So I, I wasn't able to spend the time to do that at the time. Um, but if I'm really honest, I, for me, the joy is in, in that classroom. And they haven't done it for the last several years, and so I haven't done it in the last couple yeah. of years. Um even they do it every September around Constitution Day, the signing of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. And um, the um, you know, and I think it's a wonderful program. I love partaking in it because, you know, it gets you out of the law school mode and, and down to the, the kids that I think really matter. Um, you know, I have a story always because I'm an Irishman. I'm supposed to have stories and they're true. So. <laughs> I'll tell you one that probably okay. sums up exactly why I do that. this. Um, I've been to Poway High School. I've been to Scripps Ranch High School. I've been to, you know, uh, uh, CCA, um, Canyon Crest Academy. And, and I, you know, I've done those, but I try to go more. I've been to Lincoln High School, Morse High School, Abraxas Continuation School. You know, that's where I find that, you know, that's where I really feel like I'm touching people because sometimes they're feeling we're not really part of this. And uh, so I was at Abraxas and I gave my talk and took questions. And at the end, uh, and they were aware of my bio. I mean, you've heard it. Um, At the end, this young woman came up to me and said, um, I would really like to go to law school. And and she said, Abraxas. So for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, it's a continuation school. For whatever reason, it has, the regular high school has not worked out for the kids there. Some have gotten kicked out of the school. Some, it just doesn't flow for them. Maybe they've got family issues, et cetera, et cetera. But it is, you know, a, an alternative high school. Um, and, you know, they're not worried about things like how many AP courses am I taking? I mean, they're just, they're, they're looking to get through you know, high school and earn their high school diploma. So this young gal came up to me and said she, she, you know, would really like to, you know, really liked what we were talking about and would love to study this more and go to law school. And I said, so you should. She goes, you know, I, my parents came over on a visa. She, she was Latina, Latina, um, and picked, you know, to pick fruit. You know, I was raised here. They have, you know, I am now a citizen and all, but I mean, we come from a very poor background. No one's ever, I mean, my, she was saying my father never even finished eighth grade, much less high school. And um, so I don't know. I said, you know, 
you heard my background, but let me tell you something maybe you don't know, which is, you know, you heard that I went to an elite undergrad and elite. OK, I couldn't have afforded that. But for the fact that the Navy put me through that, I mean, my grandfather, I've told you, came over on a boat as mm-hmm. well. Um, he slept on the floor of a room. He faced those signs that said Irish need not apply. And um, and I said, you know, I, you know, I know you look and see a middle aged white dude who went to elite schools. And the answer is, but, you know, it's all about following your dream and working hard. And if you do that, I promise you, you will get to where you want to be. And she said, um, and I'll never forget. She said, I think I'll go to law school. I said, and so you shall. And uh, I hope she did. I don't know. But but. Talking about these things, I always tell these kids, it's about those three words, we the people. It is our system. It is the only reason this country exists, the strength of the people. And so having that opportunity to tell high school kids, especially ones who feel like they're a little disenfranchised, that no, you're not. I know you'll face, you will face obstacles. I guarantee you that. And some of them will be enormous, but you've just got to keep going. And if you do... That's what this country represents, opportunity. And uh, sometimes people say, well, opportunity for some. I don't buy that. You know, we need to remove the obstacles where they exist. Sure. Um, But this country, if it stands for anything, it stands for opportunity. And, you know, I'm a a little softy when it comes to that. I believe in it strongly. And I get to talk about this kind of stuff to high school kids. And it's huge. I get that's awesome. It is. It's fun. It'll be it'll be great to be able to talk to high school kids, you know, in your future, you know, as an elected judge. because You have a whole new perspective, potentially. If if I am so fortunate and honored by the people of this county to get there, I promise you I will continue to do that. Well, speaking of opportunities, we have a lot of opportunities to answer questions that have been coming in here. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to just pick a few here and we'll read them together. Sure. Um, This is from Yuri Bolin. He says, hello, your honor. No, sir. Sorry, Yuri. I appreciate that. Not yet. And I will not uh, accept that until the people decide. Uh, But thank you for that. He goes, where I work in Poway in the good old days, shoplifters tried to be sneaky. Now they are arrogant and steal right in front of you and say, you can't touch me. What can be done at the local level? Uh, Well, what can be done at the local – the answer is you're right, and I I hope we kind of touched on that, uh, Erie, earlier on as to why this may be occurring. I don't have – the, you know, the absolute answers, but uh, people are arrogant and see because they feel they can get away with it now. Uh, They know that uh, the police, uh, half the time they won't, you know, be quick to respond because of all the issues that we've set in place. And when they do, they'll cite them with a piece of paper and say, come to court on, in a month, uh, but you're not getting arrested. And when you're facing, you know, the, the, the people who care to commit those thefts know that. And trust me, they do. Um, that's why they say you can't touch me because they know they can get away with it and they can blow off that case. And eventually it'll go out to warrant and who knows when it'll ever get addressed. Um, But what can we do at the local level with those things? I mean, it has to be, look, as a judge, if I were so fortunate to be there, I don't get to make the laws. I only get to enforce them uh, and to interpret them and apply them, Um, not enforce. That was a misspeak of mine. That's law enforcement. Um, (laughs) And so, and that's important to know that a judge 
uh, has only one role, but it's an important one, which is to apply the law as it stands. I may disagree with a law, but I have no choice but to follow it. The only recourse I have is if I find that it's, it runs counter to the ultimate law we have, namely the Constitution. Um, but as long as it meets constitutional, uh, you know, uh, scrutiny, if you will, I have no choice but to follow the law. And so uh, it, it, judges aren't going to change that. Who can change it are legislators. And it starts with, you know, your local city um, council to do things to help support store owners and so forth, and then to reach out through their venues to their elected, you know, to the people above them, namely state assembly, state uh, senate, and on the way up uh, to pass laws that make it more difficult. You know, that's the stick part of this. We, we should be out there trying to help people that need help, but people who are going to commit crimes have to also be held accountable. Heck, we teach that to our kids. Why would that be any different than anyone else in the community? Which is, look, you make a mistake, you're going to be held to answer for it, period. And we have to have laws that actually say that. Unfortunately, we've swung that a bit too far the other way that people feel they can and do get away with it. And so they feel they can run run around with carte blanche to do what they want. Hope that helps. <laughs> we've got a couple more questions if you like. Yeah. Okay, so um, this one's from uh, from Pete Neal. He says, do you feel that there is more focus on our legal system now compared to 10 years ago? That's an interesting question, Peter. Um, I, I think there is, but I think it's maybe beyond just our legal system. I think people are paying a little more attention now. Um, I think people are seeing that if we just let things go – a la Seattle or Portland, we see what happens. Uh, And none of us want to live in anarchy. Um, And so I I think the citizenry is paying a little bit more attention. Part of it is what I mentioned to uh, John here a minute ago is, you know, when crime starts to increase to a level that we're all feeling it, we start to care a whole lot more. Uh, When it's working fine, you know, we just, yeah, I don't know, even know what's going on down there in the in the criminal justice system. And maybe that's good. That's where citizens should be is I don't need to worry about that. But when the crime literally reaches up their driveway and steals their catalytic converter, uh, now we start to care. And I think there is a lot more attention. I'm out there in the campaign trail for me, but I run across all kinds of candidates, both for Congress and state assembly, state Senate. And this is a common refrain I'm hearing is, is people are a lot more engaged now. And I think that's a very good thing. Uh, democracy is not a, a you know just let it happen kind of system. It requires engagement of the people. Uh, you know we govern ourselves, and so we have to do so. Uh, so to answer your question from ten years ago, which is what uh, twenty eleven. Wow, that puts us back to, uh, you know, in the middle of uh, the Middle East uh, wars of Afghanistan and so forth. But maybe 30 years ago, um, I I go back to when I first came into the system 30 odd years ago. Um, and I, I think we had a similar time of 
you know, laissez-faire mode of letting the justice system do as it will. And we were paying the price for it. And so people got engaged and we passed some laws that had impact. Again, as I said before, we we maybe went too far and that's okay. So let's let's, you know, course correct a little bit, find corrections here and there, not just swing all the way back and allow anarchy to rule again. And why we keep going from one side to the other without stopping somewhere in the middle is a little mind boggling to me. But to answer your question, I do think there's more focus on it. Uh, and I think that's a very good thing. Indeed, people need to care about our justice system. Uh, it is the thing that keeps us there. It is the check and balance on the other two uh, forms of government. And um, so we need to be engaged. Okay. So um, I have another question for you. And it's, you know, we, we just had hearings for Supreme Court Justice nominee Judge Jackson. Yes. And I guess she's going to be formally appointed in a few months, perhaps, right? Uh, yeah, she's she she will be appointed as soon as um, the current justice steps down from retirement. Right. Yes. Okay. So you know she's on the in the on deck circle. Yes. As she's, it were. she's the you know justice select. Okay. Yes. So I remember one of the things that I thought was really interesting about her is that she was a public defender. Yes. And 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 I know your background. You you you've you've tried cases. You've you've been on the prosecution side, but you've also done defense. Yes. As a private practice uh, practitioner, I guess is the right word. Um, so tell me a little bit more about what it's like to experience both sides of a trial and how the circumstances are different and what kind of insight that could give you as a judge. Hmm. Um, okay. The, uh, I guess, let me start with this. When I came out of the district attorney's office, 12 years, hundred trials, um, and two years before that in civil litigation, uh, I, you know, cockily, felt I was pretty good. Uh, I thought I was a pretty decent trial lawyer. Uh, and it's like anything else, experience. Um, then I opened my own practice and I represented people in all kinds of areas, not the least of which was criminal defense cases, mostly uh, large white collar fraud type cases is where I focused a bit. Um, and after those eight years, I can comfortably say I was a far better lawyer and a far better trial lawyer. Uh, than I was before I opened my own practice. And it was because doing something, quite frankly, the military tends to do in their JAG Corps um, is they usually, and I can't speak definitively to this, but they will move their lawyers from the prosecution side to the defense side. And by doing so, I mean, look, uh, you get better when you've handled cases from both sides of the aisle or from the different tables, as mm -hmm. we call it in the courtroom, um, because you have insights to both sides that makes you far better. It's, you know, it's like anything else in life. The more we experience things, the better we're going to be at that. And um, there was a old time prosecutor when I was still a D.A. who used to say the most dangerous lawyer in the courthouse is the defense lawyer who's a former prosecutor. Uh, and now, that was a little self-serving because he's like, oh, my God, all those defense lawyers are, you know, scumballs, uh, which I always took exception to. But <laughs> um, but he had a point, which is, you know, once you've been a prosecutor for a long period of time, you, you kind of know how cases are prosecuted. And as a defense lawyer, you know how to attack those cases better. Um, 
And so it definitely made me a better trial lawyer, a better lawyer overall, and a better lawyer overall because it's one thing to stand up and make no mistake about it. I had no better honor than to stand up in front of a jury or a, or a judge and say, Your Honor, Pete Murray, representing the people of the state of California. Uh, whether I was a DA or a deputy AG, uh, I, I said the same thing because it was true. That was my client, the people of the state of California. And we that, the people. We the people. Yeah. As a defense lawyer, um, I picked up on a – which I heard a public defender say once, and I thought that was a very good line, which is she got up in one of our trials after I had said, I'm Pete Murray representing the people of the state of California, uh, in all that smugness that that may sound, and I hope I wasn't. But um, but she got up and she said, I'm you know Jane Smith, whatever, uh, and I represent the defendant here. I represent the people of the state of California as well also. I just do it one person at a time. And I thought, that's a good line. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> but until you've stood with someone who looks at you like, uh, I mean, literally they're white, they're knight in shining armor. You know, you are the person between them and the apparatus of the state. And that is a really eye-opening position to be in. Um, to And I've had... Even cop, I remember having a cop who was charged with a crime up in uh, Riverside County, and he said to me once, he said, I never knew what it was like on this side. I said, no, you didn't. Uh, it is different, and you, you begin to appreciate what the apparatus of the state being brought to bear against you as a defendant, how significant it is. So uh, I think it was incredibly important for me it made me better and i absolutely think it makes me a far better judicial candidate than i say would be if i was only a prosecutor my whole career um because i see both sides and i know what it's like to represent an individual person uh and i know the compassion and the insight it takes to deal with those people. And that doesn't mean you get a pass. You're, you're going to be held accountable. I don't think anyone who knows me knows, you know, is going to call me soft on crime anytime soon. Um, but I'm going to try to understand what's really underlying here. I mean, if, if someone is a, a, a vet who's suffering PTSD, who commits a crime or a minor assault, my God, can we put them in the veterans court, which is closely controlled? and get them through a program that actually addresses the root cause of their problems and take them completely out of the justice system eventually and make them move on to a productive citizen life. Boy, if that's not the goal of what we should be doing, I don't know what is. Um, so that's what I think I bring to bear. When I look at uh, justice, um, the new justice, I, um, I don't know all of her background. I know reading people that I respect, uh, that there could be little doubt of her qualifications. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly being a federal public defender, she has tried a lot of cases uh, and seen a lot of different situations. And so I'm sure that I'm, I would like to think she'd agree with me that that has made her capable, amongst everything else she's done, uh, to be a competent Supreme Court justice. Um you know, I'll go off on a limb here because I know people have some very 
emotional responses to this. Uh, to me, the worst thing that happened is when we start to get out there with this identity politics and start to describe what we need to have by any measure Having a court that is diverse and representative of the community is not only good, it's essential. But we can't lose sight of putting people in a place simply because of their identity as opposed to their qualifications. I don't think Martin Luther King Jr. would agree with that. He wanted a time when we would no longer measure a person by the color of their skin, but rather the, you know, the, the, the strength of their character. And if we can get back to doing that... And when we look at people like Supreme Court justices and and focus, I'm not appointing her if I were Joe Biden because of the fact she happens to be female or she happens to be black. I'm appointing her because she's the most qualified in my mind and leave it at that and let it go because. I think she could withstand whatever scrutiny they want to throw at her. And I'm sure anyone, you know, there's all kinds of things we could attack that, per, you know, public policy wise, we don't like what she's written or suggested. Fine. But when we reach the point of can you really say she's not qualified? No. Well, then guess what? We're really done. Um, and this is not a should not be a political decision because when we start doing that, we will destroy the Supreme court. And if we destroy the Supreme court, we just, we will destroy the justice system. So, um, maybe I went beyond that question, (laughs) but I, I kind of feel strongly because I don't like when we politicize the courts, uh, and it is uh, a level of independence and independence of the judiciary is something we talk about all the time, which is what I, quite frankly, humbly think I bring. Well, let's talk about independence, because yes. in, in the Union Tribune article, you made a big point of absolute independence. Right. Now, what does that mean in the context of, of you know, being a candidate for judge? You're right. Uh, I mean, to me, and when I maybe I shouldn't use the word absolute. Because that means I don't care about here's who I answer to as a judge, the people of the county that elected me, period. And when I talk about independence, I'm talking about any particular special interest group. So whether that be and I'll try to cover the bases that maybe that's a police union on one side or um, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, on the other side or uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving or the Deputy District Attorneys Association. I mean, all of these are organizations that have interest, all fine. But a judge has got to be beyond that. And here's a concern I have is that when judges look over their shoulders, because remember, every judge is running for reelection every six years. And something people don't know is that a judge who's, let's say they're put on the bench at 45 years old or something like, well, you cannot retire till you're 65 and have 20 years of experience or 20 year tenure on the bench. You get zero retirement prior to that. And so if you're 54 years old and been on the bench for 14 years or 12 years or something like that, you can't retire. You can't lose this job as a judge. So when you're hearing of that particularly pressworthy case that may be dividing the community. Um, 
are you going to be looking over your shoulder to see what does the DA think about this or what does the deputy district attorneys think about this or what does, um, the, you know, the mothers against drunk driving think about this? I mean, if you're doing that, you've lost your independence. You're now mm-hmm. concerned about what they're thinking because that you're wondering about your next election. Um, and that that worries me because without an absolute independence of the judiciary, uh, then we're just a political arm. And we're responding to whoever we think is going to bankroll our next election kind of thing Um, or bankroll an opponent to run against you, which is their Mm -hmm. biggest fear. I will tell you that most of the in San Diego, we rarely have. uh, We did two terms ago uh, have someone run against a sitting judge and he had a lot of problems. And you may recall that. Uh, But. Beyond that, I think one other judge has even uh, ever lost years and years and years ago. And if I have that right, it was because he'd been convicted of domestic violence. I mean, so it people tend not to run against sitting judges here in San Diego and they don't win, even if they do in the few cases where it happens. Uh, Nonetheless, there's not a judge that doesn't worry about that next term coming up. And, oh, my God, if someone runs against me, all they have to do is file cost them two thousand dollars. But if they do, you're now in a campaign. Now, you may have a lot of support, but you still got to do what I'm doing right now. And I can assure you, most of the judges don't want to do this, um, to spend the campaign, to spend the money, the time, the effort to try to hold on to your job. Um, but that may may occur. And everyone whose term is expiring faces that potential. Um, so it would not surprise me that they're going, you know, the potential is for them to worry about the powers that be might think about it. Um, You know, do you upset the business community that they're going to run someone against you? The answer is if you can't go, look, I'm following the law and applying it to the facts of this case, wherever the chips lay, they lay. That's the decision I'm going to make. Um, And if you can't do that, then you're compromised by definition. You're compromised. And that's, you know, I'm sure every judge would sitting out there would say, that's what I do. But we also have to recognize there are some harsh realities here, whereas, you you know, if you lose in an election, you're out of a job. Now, what are you going to do? Go call a law firm and go, hey, remember me? I'm a judge. I haven't practiced law, to, you know, in years, but on and on and on. This is part of my problem with, you know, putting people who are so young on the bench. Um, not only do I think you need a little life experience to be a judge sitting up there making decisions about other people's lives. Um And so and with all due respect to I don't know who's out there, but the 40 year olds, the 41 year olds, I mean, good Lord, raise some kids or something. I mean, Mm -hmm. grow up a little bit um, kind of thing. But we're putting people that age on the bench all the time. The governor is. Um, And, you know, they are going to worry over that term over whether they ever get run against. Uh, What I bring to bear is, quite frankly, I don't much care about what anyone any special interest group may think I will always stay true to one thing. I will look at the law and apply it as best I can and will not stray from that based on the facts of the case. Um, And if that means that I raise the ire of some group, so be it. And the beauty is when I'm now at this stage of my career, so run against me, take your best shot. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not in this for a retirement. Um, 
even if I ever retired from the bench, which I don't see happening, I'm not going to get very much money given the terms. I mean, it just it just isn't there. So that has nothing to do with it. Um, You know, I I don't care about that. I care about being the person that you can look at and go, he's going to make a call based on the laws. And if we don't like the laws, then go to the legislature and change them. This guy's going to base it on the law and the facts of the case. And where his discretion applies, apply them in the most you know, equitable way possible, because ultimately equity does have a role in, in our in our judicial system. I'll give you one other example, and I think it's a good one. Uh, there's a current sitting judge, and you can find this, so it wouldn't be um, uh, easy, uh, Judge Frank Devaney. Judge Devaney had a case before him with the cop who was a, de- I think I have this right, a deputy sheriff. Harbor police arrested a guy, brought him to the downtown jail. He was, they're going in the the Sally port where they drive him in, and the kid kicked open the door and jumped out of the car. I think he must have been handcuffed, and he's running down the street. And an off-duty sheriff who's coming on duty to work in the jail, of course, has his, you know, personal revolver with him, um, and he ordered him to stop, and he didn't. He, I don't know if he chased him. The facts aren't totally important at this point, but then he shot him, and he shot him in the back. And um, he was charged with serious crimes. I don't recall the specifics, maybe second-degree murder, um, and on and on and on. Now, we could all argue is that awful or is that appropriate. That's not the point that I'm trying to make. The point is that case came to court. He ended up pleading guilty. The district attorney, uh, through her deputy, you know, argued for, I think it was eight years in state prison. Now, this guy had no other uh, history behind him, but this was an awful shooting by really almost any definition. You don't shoot someone in the back who's Mm -hmm. not a threat. Uh, So he needed to be held accountable. But Frank Devaney looked at the entire case and ordered him he he declined to follow the DA, did not put him in prison, ordered him to go on probation for whatever, five years, and to serve a year in county jail, which is not a pleasant thing for anybody, trust me. Um, but one could envision that the DA and all the other people out there, oh, my God, you know, the, I mean, the DA has brought a case and is arguing for eight years. And if you've come up as nothing but a DA and you've been put on the bench with the support of DAs, I mean, how do you how do you do when you're faced with that decision? How do you come around and order uh, ultimately order a sentence of only, you know, probation and a year in jail? Whether it was right or whether you agree with it or not, again, is not the point. Judge Devaney used his own independence and made the ruling that I'm sure he thought was the the most, the best, the most equitable given all the circumstances. And it's not a question of whether I agree or don't, because I don't know enough about the facts. What I like to see is he made that independent decision. Well, and, and I think that's the interesting part about your background, because it is so diverse, because you've been on both tables in the, in the, in the courtroom, that you can apply that independence and judgment. Right. Rather than being just one of those categories and sympathizing with that one category. Right. And and I yeah. don't mean to suggest that anybody out there, whatever their background is, necessarily does that. I, I just want to raise the, the notion of the potential for that. Yeah. And by removing those, 
we can guard against that a bit in my mind. And they are removed largely from me because, you know, I could tell people if 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 I make a call that I am ready to take to my grave as the right one to make and it means that I get defeated in six years. I'm fine with that. And and I can afford to be fine with it because I'm old enough that it won't matter that much. Mm-hmm. I can go on to do other things or, or can, you know, really retire. Um, uh, I don't <laughs> yeah. envision that ever happening. My, my goal here would be to serve until I can't serve anymore. Uh, this would be the last job I'd ever take in my life. And um, if I, you know, that's that would be my goal. Um, but I... I the independence of the judiciary is so fundamental to our system is why I elevate it so much in both my discussion with the UT and, and, and elsewhere is, I mean, my God, that's what Marbury versus Madison is all about is, you know, if we turn the judiciary into someone, into a group that sways based on the political climate of the time, then we're really in trouble. And I really believe that. And uh, that's why we have to do everything we can uh, to enforce that notion. Um, And we, you know, some people would say, well, then why don't we have life tenure Um, like the federal court does? Mm -hmm. I mean, the federal judges, you get on it. And that's why a lot like to go to the federal bench because you're on for life. That's why they're appointing them when they're in their 40s, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) And the pushback on that might be, but now they're not really accountable to anyone, are they? Right. Short of some absolute malfeasance in office. But here, uh, I mean, we could do a better job, I think, with how we elect judges. But the plain and simple fact is you're coming up for reelection in six years uh, or the end of whatever term. And that isn't a level of accountability that I think is good to maintain, but also countervailed with not being in a position where I can't afford to lose this position. And so I can't afford to upset the police union, for example. Um, And, you know, again, you've heard me talk about a supportive law enforcement, so I'm not too worried about that. But I will say this is, you know, any police union that would expect me to go on the bench and never allow or or to thwart the prosecution of a of a cop for committing a crime would be grossly mistaken. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not what's going to happen. They'll be treated like anybody else out there that commits a crime, but they'll be held accountable. And. That's the independence that, you know, I, I think we need. It's not just a want. It, it's it's absolutely critical. Agreed. So, yeah, leave the political stuff to the, the legislators. Yes. And then the, the, the judges, the judicial system should be independent, ideally unbiased. Yes. And just execute according to the law. Absolutely. And, and use judgment as, as appropriate. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll touch up on, you know, people talk about, you know, they ask, well, is the system inherently biased, inherently racist? I don't know that any system is. People are. Um, we all have biases. I mean, you know, let's just stop the charade of, of course we have biases. I mean, I can't view life through the lens of a a young black man, because I'm not a young black man. I'm a middle-aged white guy. I mean, but I've had enough experiences. I grew up in a multiracial area. My brother-in-law is is black. I mean, so I've been close enough to know that I can't know what that's like, but, you know, to be that person, but I've been close enough to know what they're, you know, what... Uh, some of their concerns are and to go, you need to think about that. You need to think about those and how that may play out in a courtroom or anywhere else for that matter. 
Um, and, and that's what I think is the most important thing we do as we talk about, you know, all this is to recognize we all have biases. Of course we do. We try to recognize them, suppress them where they're, you know, coming into play in a decision we may make. Um, and, and that's the effort we need to make. I mean, this presumption of, oh, we'll all be colorblind. Well, unless we're all literally blind, that's silly. Right. And quite frankly, I think it's, it takes away from the majesty of this country, uh, the beauty of all the colors and genders and, you know, the ethnicities. I mean, that's the strength of this country. Um, so I revel in that. Um, but we all have to recognize we all see life through our own perspective. But you got to start with recognizing that, recognizing right. that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's when we talk about the need for diversity. Of course there is, uh, because by being on the bench next to another, say, African-American, a black woman judge, I mean, we may be able to share discussions that will actually aid me in the work I do. And that's wonderful. Um, what I don't want to do is we'll put people in a position simply because who they are and not what right. they bring to bear. Mm-hmm. So. Well, let, let's switch gears. Somehow. All right. Okay. Well, the, I, I'm game. I'll go as long as you want. I just don't want to take no, up all your time. No, no, or... this is all good. No, you'll enjoy this part. Of it. Well, maybe you won't. How you doing after the final four? Are you, are oh, you, okay? Are you okay? I no, mean, you had to go there. <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, Duke and UNC in the national semifinals, I mean, that must have been a really emotional game for you. That was, especially after the last game of the season, which was at Cameron Indoor Stadium, Coach K's last home game against Carolina, and they flat out put a spanking on us. Um, I... I I know, because I watched, Coach K came out, he probably would have retracted this word if he could, and he did in a sort, because he kind of apologized later. When he came out, and they did, we're doing a ceremony, and he kind of, I don't know if you saw that, but he then walked up to the podium, and they're like, he's like, no, I want to say something. And before they even got started, he said, that was unacceptable. Hmm. What you just saw on this court was unacceptable. And... And then I think he kind of caught himself. He said, you know, but, you know, I still love my guys. Don't mistake what I'm saying. And we're not done yet. Um, so we're going on to the tournament. And I'm like, OK. But in that moment, and he got some grief for this. I mean, you got these 10 guys, yeah. young men, and sitting in the stands, not only packed, but 80 former players, many of them NBA players. I was a little harsh. And I think he probably would have said, I probably should have said that behind. He was behind. caught up in the emotion yeah, of it. Of course he was. Because yeah, yeah. he's a person. I think he's the first yeah. person to say, look, I'm, I'm a human. I'm not perfect. <laughs> um, and then he, he, but that was a tough time. And then to, I thought, oh, I didn't know how I felt going into that going, I mean, do I want to face Carolina or do I not want to face them? Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're a college basketball fan, it was exactly what we should have seen. It gets no better than that. Final Four, Duke, Carolina, you know, everything on the line. And by any measure, after I stepped away from it, it was an incredible game. Yeah, it was. It was a great game. It was. It was a great game. And it could have been won in, in the last seconds by either side. And Carolina made the you know, made shots they had. And I forget well, who was the Carolina player, but godly. I mean, he made those threes. You're just like, God bless you, son. You, you, you pulled it off. And uh, so you, you can't be too upset with that. Sure, it was hard, but. Uh, well, it was that was Coach K's last game. Very last game. So just as a as a Dukey, longtime fan of the program, what do you most 
appreciate or respect in Mike Shashevsky? What stands out to you? You know, I, I would not presume to know him personally. I've, I've met him briefly. I've seen him. Um, I've heard stories, lots of them, because I know a few of his former players, and they said, you should see him behind closed doors. He, he can be pretty rough. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's got a side to him. And I'm sure he'd say, you know, look, I grew up in a Howard Scrabble Polish Chicago neighborhood. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, with that disclaimer, um, you know, my takeaway is a guy who ran a program on certain principles and he stuck with them, and he stuck with them over the long term. I mean, it was it's one thing to go, you know, I, I'm not going to, to bend to, you know, quick fixes, uh, you know, uh, trying to cheat the system or whatever the case may be. Um, I'm going to live true to who I am, which is beautiful in its own right. But he did it for 42 years. And I don't think anyone can, you know, believe me, I know I've read them all, the Coach K haters. Um, but in truth, you you can't really dispute what he meant to the program. There was never any controversy, you know, any, you know, um, uh, difficulties around the program as far as recruiting or uh, improper payments or any of that that anyone's ever brought to light. Um, yeah, it's all first class with him. Yeah, he's, you know, and it comes back, you know, I maybe it's where I come from. I, I think he, he learned it as a young Army officer coming out of West Point, and it carried him throughout his life. And I think he'd say that. And I say that about myself. I mean, who I am today is because I was fortunate enough to be commissioned an officer in the United States Navy and, uh, and got to serve. It's, uh, you, you, there are certain ways of, you know, taking care of your people and that you could see in, in Krzyzewski. You know, when you had 80 people showing up and even some, you know, writing in, apologizing they can't show because they're literally in an NBA game that day, um, across the board, he touched lives. And what he did is truly what any coach is all about. It's about being a teacher, you know, a molder of young people. And, you know, I think he did it better than anyone else. Um, separate and apart from the record and the numbers, um, you know, there's a reason why all of these guys, they call it the brotherhoods. I'm sure the Carolina and other people roll their eyes. But these guys, you know, stand for each other and back each other up always. Um, and, you know, it's uh, that's that's kind of my takeaway that that doesn't happen without the captain of the ship, in this case, the coach setting that in place and enforcing it throughout. Um, and he did. And he adapted through 42 years of an ever-changing environment. Um, so that's that's my takeaway, is that he truly was a teacher and a molder of young people in the best of ways and won a whole lot of basketball games in the, in the process. Yeah. So, so maybe the end of an era. Absolutely. Maybe his, you know, his uh, chosen successor who played for him and coached under him. Um, hopefully he learned all that and, and will continue the tradition. Coach Shire. Mm, he's uh, that's that's a heavy baton to, to Very take. heavy. But looking at what I'm seeing, uh, I think you and I have talked about this. I'm not a fan in college basketball. It just is where it is. I mean, the one and dones and now the transfer portals and. 
you know, back in the day, you know, when I went through law school, I mean, we had players there for four years and, you know, you really grew with them. And those days seem to be gone, almost certainly. Uh, I don't think it's by sheer happenstance that Carolina was a little more experienced team than we were. Yeah, they were. Uh, mm-hmm. And that I think that played out for him. Um, you know, Baycott in particular, who's a, a junior now coming back. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's he was back. amazing. Yeah. He was amazing. And he's coming back for Carolina. The fact that he um, what I saw him do to us in that last home game. I mean, that was all about, you know, junior level, you know, three year experience of a guy who was not going to back down in the face of the most intimidating crowd you can imagine. God, there's a lot to be said for, you know, a comes all the way to my campaign. It's about experience. Experience does matter. It mm-hmm. really does. And, you know, you can have the best freshman in the world, but I think you're asking for, you know, that's going to be your Achilles heel, too. And I think Duke has faced that since 20. Our last national championship was led by a senior, John Shire, mm-hmm. um, 2015. We haven't won the national championship since. And soon after, I think it was the next year, maybe two years later, is when. <laughs> We really took on the one and dones that Shashevsky started to say he was not going to buy and then realized I can't fight that trend. And so he followed it. And so no surprise, next year we've got a ridiculous recruiting class coming in, apparently, plus transfers. Uh, they keep every time. I think we got the number one recruit in the country who just signed with Duke. So he's got the ammunition. Um, but again, pretty young, pretty young. Most of our guys have left. Um uh, one of them, uh, I think it was um, not AJ, the other Trevor, uh, is coming back as it will be a junior as the point guard. So that will help. Mm-hmm. That will help a lot. Um, but we got a whole bunch of freshmen. And I'm just, you know, I just think that's a lot to put on a 19-year-old kid. Yeah, it is. You know, th- their skills carry them until you're sitting in Cameron Indoor Stadium or the Dean Dome or Rupp Arena. I mean, man. And the pressures that come on these kids, I mean, look at it now. It's a multi-billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I hope we – I'm worried that Krzyzewski, even though he insists it had nothing to do with it, I worry that he's really leaving because he's feeling the the game has moved beyond where he wants to be. Uh, um, the, that wouldn't surprise me. No, and he denies that, but he's – you know, he's – kind of slough that off as, no, I'm not leaving because of the one-and-done area. It's just time to go. And I wonder. But he keeps saying and dinging hard on the NCAA. So it wouldn't shock me to see. And now I see, as of what, yesterday, the NCAA president just stepped down. Oh. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I did. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's talk of whether the NCAA basketball in particular doesn't need a, you know, an NBA-type commissioner. Mm. And wouldn't Krzyzewski be the one they – and there's been talk about that as, you know, the – whatever you want to call it, you know, someone to head up the NCAA in particular, if not the NCAA at at large. Um, Because it's really getting to points where – I mean, this – and the NIL mode is Right. I mean, that's changing everything as well. Everything. And influencing the transfer portal and recruiting and – I mean, some of these kids are like, it's like they're signing a pro contract. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. And for some, and, you know, how long does it go before the quarterback at, you know, Alabama and uh, Saban, you know, I saw him, he he was saying that we're, we're going into dangerous territory here. Yeah. Uh, you know, the quarterback, because he's the quarterback of Alabama, uh, you know, gets, the, you know, God knows how much money he makes with an NIL deal. 
uh, you know, and those offensive guards and tackles are going, yo, right. Um, You know, and now we're putting into, you know, into tension, you know, kind of the underlying thing. It it goes through everything I think about um, that Krzyzewski talked about. It goes back to the military. It is the the mantra of the SEAL teams. That's why they, if you listen to any SEAL, they don't call themselves a SEAL. They call them, I'm I'm a member of the teams. It's about the team. It is about the individuals being brought together to form a stronger entity that mm-hmm. anyone or all five together could be. And um, when you start to give different incentives to, you know, the quarterback, because he's the quarterback, uh, do, are we losing that most core thing that I think mm-hmm. sports brings us is, you know, the teamwork? Um, yeah, a little friction, a little division in the clubhouse. Yes. You know, like a two-tier or three-tiered kind of a situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that could be difficult, especially in college sports where yeah. you expect this to be a little more camaraderie and, yeah. oh, you know, all, all for one and one for all. And absolutely. All that. Absolutely. It's, you know, I'm fine with, you know, the hero worship. Uh, okay, we get that. But, you know, now you're putting dollars and cents on it. Yeah. And that's... Well, on one hand, though, it's interesting because, you know, th- those athletes... They, they're indirectly generating a tremendous amount of revenue. Yes, you know, and they don't really get to participate as much in the share of it. So, at some levels, it's perhaps justice, you know, to go yeah. that they're going to have some compensation. But the system is perhaps not optimized, right? You know, it's going through growing pains. Yes, and so yeah, it's going to distort things, and it's going to make the whole landscape different. Yeah, and that, yeah, maybe that's why Shashevsky is. I mean, he still has gas left in the tank. I mean, he, he can still coach. He clearly does. He, yeah. um, I don't know if you saw, they, uh, I got a kick. They got him a present uh, on his last day. The team did. Mm-hmm. And uh, as and Shire was up there speaking for the team, and he said, you know, we, we know that you still have it more in you, so you won't be able to coach us. So we have some, or you won't be able to train this team anymore, but we have something else for you to train. And they brought out a little chocolate lab oh. puppy. <laughs> named Coach. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and I thought that's sweet. So do we have any questions that uh, we blew off or haven't? No, no, there's some here. I mean, it's a lot of comments, you know. Um, you know, Pete Neal says, you know, you know, thank you for providing the context, exactly what I asked for in the question. Follow on, should law be part of police training? Uh, yes, and it is. Uh, yeah. may, maybe not as much as uh, one would think, but make no mistake about it. In the police academy, they are absolutely go through classes on things like the Fourth Amendment, um, yeah. search and seizure stuff. Um, you know, uh, so yes, uh, could there be more? I suspect so. I haven't gone through a police academy to to really answer that definitively. But but to answer your question, Peter, yes, uh, law is part of it, um, and being that they are out there every day enforcing the law it leads me to think we probably could do some more and maybe more continuing training with them with law enforcement agencies beyond just that and they do they do have it uh, don't mistake what i'm saying but uh, they probably could use ever more because they're the ones making calls every day and uh you know we talk about distinctions between reasonable suspicion and probable cause um there's a new law that uh is potentially going to be passed by California state legislature that will preclude an officer from making a stop based on reasonable suspicion. 
that used to be the guiding term. What does that really mean? It depends on the facts of the case. But if a cop sees something that gives them what the court can call a reasonable suspicion, then they can detain someone and investigate further. This law will make that illegal. Uh, You can only do it if you have the next higher level, which is probable cause to believe that a crime actually occurred. (laughs) And from the police agency, a police entity, that is a crippling limitation because the notion of a cop, I mean, let's face it, cops go on instinct a little bit, especially the more experienced ones. They've been around. They, um, They see something that doesn't look right that might be suspicious. They want to investigate further. This will preclude them from doing that. They're going to have to derive this higher level of what we call probable cause. And and the, the short version of that is enough facts to lead a reasonable person to believe more probably than not that a crime has just occurred. And that's what. You know, that, that's a much higher standard for the, for the police uh, and will preclude them from making stops they might otherwise make. Uh, the other thing is if they make what we call pretext stops, uh, a cop sees you've got a broken taillight. They can pull you over and then ask for your license stuff and so forth and then can investigate further. Let's say they open, you know, put down the window and they smell marijuana emanating well now they have a probably a probable cause even to believe that you're driving while under the influence of a drug Uh, or they see bloodshot eyes what this law will say is you cannot cite this person for anything beyond the reason that you stopped them for in in this case a broken taillight and you're going to have to walk away from what you know is a crime about to commit namely someone who's impaired and going to keep driving Uh, Go figure how the cops are going to work with that one. Um, As I say, some of these laws, uh, you know, I I see the the reason they're pursuing them. But you got to think through how it plays out in the street. And I don't think that's what's happening. It's this, you know, voice of reason mode of uh, think about how that really works. So sorry to go too far on that. I um, I did see. uh, Mr. Ed Franklin. Yeah, you want to look at some of his here. Oh, I see. He said, "I get the discretion. That discretion is a slippery slope." And uh, Ed, if you're still there, of course it is. Um, You know, which is why I don't say it lightly. uh, But I guess if I have to choose between being hamstrung as a judge or having the discretion to make a call that someone can then question me on, or appeal me and let a higher court decide whether I got it right. I'll opt to the latter, uh, but to be limited to, you know, follow this guideline put out by the legislature, I mean, you might as well have a robot do it. Uh, there, I mean, we can get AI to become judges. I'm not sure I want to see that day when we have AI-driven robots making what ju- decisions the judges used to make. I like the fact that we answer to the people. You can use judgment. And gosh forbid, use judgment. Yes. Right. So, uh, anything else in there that yeah, you want to? Well, just you know, some interesting comments or some conversation amongst the people in oh, the that's, chat. That's good talking to each other. But I think we got most of the gist of the questions. You know, they're these are all folks who are local here in our community. They enjoy the podcast, and you know, we've had an amazing conversation. This is a blast. I, I love this. This is uh, you know, I have been asked about 
uh, campaigning, and, and I can assure you, I am not a politician because I can't stand campaigning uh, as a as a general rule. How these uh, like the Congress uh, folks and uh, run every two years is beyond me. Uh, I mean, I just don't know how they do it. I. I I hope I never have to campaign again because and I don't intend to. Um, with that said, what I'm talking about is jumping through the hoops and raising money and talk it, you know, and going to this group and that group. But sitting down and talking to people much like you and I are doing right now it, it is a real joy. I mean, as you can tell, I'm not shy. Yeah. I like to talk with people. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a personable per- person and. Uh, this is the interplay that I I love. And so when I get the chance to be out in front of groups and just having these one-on-one discussions, um, it makes it all worth it. Well, I think it's great for you to do this on the campaign trail because people sometimes don't get to know judges. Absolutely. You know, they're up on a pedestal, you know, and they're a little bit cloaked to a degree. They're emotionless at times. Yes. Now we're kind of getting to understand you your perspective, how you perceive the world. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's so helpful because I'm, I admitted to you last time uh, when you were here that I struggle at the ballot box when it's time to vote for a judge. Most do. Because I, I know, you know, a traditional politician, I know where they line up on the issues. Yes. But with judges, I sometimes don't. You're right. But you have to maybe as a, as a voter – do more due diligence to learn more about what makes that judge tick. Right. Rather than what's his position on this issue or that issue. Absolutely. Yeah. And some of it you can see through their experience, their life experience, their professional experience, and some of it's just talking uh, to them and spending a little effort to, you know, all of it is useful. I hope none of it becomes, you know, uh, the linchpin. In other words, uh, you know, it is by definition a nonpartisan race, so you're never going to see a political party affiliation. But no, make no mistake about it, the political parties are weighing in at, at different places. So that may be important to you. Uh, or not. Um, the Union Tribune will weigh in and produce their uh, answers to questions. I think they'll do an endorsement or, or not. Uh, the county bar will make an evaluation, uh, none of which should be, oh, that's it. Um, it's it's collecting all of it and then making your own independent decision. You know, when I'm out there, I, I really believe, and I, I say this, I believe strong, I think it maybe is apparent, in the, in the justice system. I mean, I'm, I'm passionate about it. And I also believe that good judges can make it work and bad judges can destroy it. Um, and that's why this position is so critical. Uh, that and the fact that they're literally making decisions every single day that impact people's lives. Um, so it's if we all could agree that it's a really important position, then you want to pick someone who you think is going to do a good job. And so you have to do a little more research than you might otherwise, you know, that may be less than obvious. You've got to look behind the scenes yes. a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I encourage people to do that. I say this to every group I talk to, uh, you know, read up, do your research, please. I wouldn't say that. Oh, and then I say, and then you vote for whoever you think is the best one for the position. And I'm fine with that. If that's not me, so be it. I, I, I'm fine with that. Now, I wouldn't say that if I didn't think that <laughs> if you do that, I know where you'll come out, um, I, I believe, if you look into all the things that matter. Um, but it is about being, uh, you know, we don't even have to spend. Some people will spend hours and hours doing research. Okay, that's wonderful. But just being informed 
electorate. You know, you have this right called the right to vote. Exercise it and exercise it with a little bit of information. Um, in the last election, the last primary, um, we have 1.9, give or take, million registered voters here in the county of San Diego. And in case I didn't make it clear, this is a countywide vote for judge. Mm-hmm. It's a huge county. Yeah. Um, side note, I think my largest campaign expenditure will be the ca- the gas in my car with gas prices the way they are because <laughs> uh, I am on the road all the time. But anyway, um, uh, 1.9 million registered voters in the last primary, about 900,000, a little bit, maybe close to a million actually voted. Which is, you know, kind of sad to me. 1.9, that's, you know, 60%-ish. Some would say that's actually a pretty good turnout. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Of those that actually voted, 40% of them did not cast a a vote for judge. Mm. 40%. So there were only 600,000, give or take, votes for judge. Um, I understand why. But if you agree with me that it's an important position, and you agree with me that it's important that we think about who we put there, then for gosh sakes, do a little bit of research and make that choice. Exercise your vote. You're right. And vote for somebody um, that, you know, the best of your research can tell you in the limited time is the one. And I think we've lost some of our excuses because those ballots will show up in your mailbox. The little county pamphlet will be the little and you can read our ballot statements. Every one of us, you had to pay for it a ridiculous amount. Mm-hmm. Side note, $16,000 to put 200 words in that little book. Really? Yes. That's what it cost me just to get in the book. Wow. Yeah. It's not a inexpensive proposition. Well, there's a lot of printing and postage, but 16000 16000 like because a- it's countywide yeah. and it's printing postage and uh, translated into, I think they go to five languages or something okay. like that. But um, so whether that's justifiable, here's my problem with that. I can come up with that and, and raise funds and my own money, but uh, that's a big obstacle for some people. Oh, yeah. And if people are precluded from running for office simply because of money, then we're not doing a... I mean, now we're talking my whole other <laughs> issue about campaign finance reform and really one of our biggest problems, I think. But uh, so it, it is that notion of do the little bit of research, read this pamphlet and then make as best informed decision as you can. But these positions matter and they matter to you because you go, well, I don't go to court. Oh, well, OK, hopefully you're never in a criminal court. What if you get sued? What if you got to sue your neighbor? What if, uh, you know, you have a child or a grandchild who ends up in juvenile court. What if, God forbid, you're in the middle of a divorce or there's child custody issues or your kids have child custody? All of these decisions are being made by one person, not a committee of the you know city council, not the legislature, one judge. And before you let that happen, at least feel like you weighed in on who that person is, because most of the judges on the bench are not elected, they're appointed. And they're appointed to fill a term, you know, whatever term they're filling, you know, of the a judge may retire midterm. We didn't really talk about this. If they retire midterm in the middle of their six year term, that seat is open for appointment. And almost all of them are occur that way. Um, and those are all appointed by the governor. So, and then if they're an incumbent, they 
generally don't have a challenger. Yeah, right. So we only get, I mean, you're, this mm-hmm. is, you get, you get actually get to vote for two judges this time. Um, all the ones, and there's a lot of retirements going on, those will all be done by one person, namely the governor. And whether you agree or disagree with the governor, I mean, that's just reality. Uh, he has his own perspective, I, I assume, on how things uh, should be. Uh, I can look at the numbers and know that he's not, you know, most of his appointees are very young. Um, does he want a legacy? I don't know. Um I guess. Um, maybe he thinks that's better. Okay. Uh, and he's the governor, so he gets to choose that. Um, I know this. In all of his time there, he's never appointed a vet to the bench. Not one. Really? Not one. God, you think with so many veterans in California, you'd want to have want to check that box at some point. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's – do I think that he's purposely not appointing vets? No. I no, have no yeah, I way agree. to say that. But, yeah. again, I think he has a, a, a you know, a, a perspective on who he wants to put on the bench. And as the governor, he gets to do that. When these seats come up for election as the electorate, now you get to weigh in on that. Right. Um, and, and that's all I'm suggesting is – Well, we already got one person that's weighed in. is Peter yep. Neild. Yep. And he said – Thank you, Peter. You have my vote. Okay. <laughs> Peter, thank you. That's uh, one down. And I figure, you know, if I do the numbers, 300,000 to win it outright in June. So 299,999 to go. So okay. I thank you for that. Well, 98, because oh, I want to be voting for you as two, well. <laughs> I think my wife will vote for me. So uh, see, we're chinking it down a little bit at a time. <laughs> Really, thank you, Peter. I really appreciate your time, and, and I know you keep in close touch with John here. So uh, thanks for your engagement. It's really, really important. This is this is how our community operates at its best. So what's next on the campaign trail? you got to get in your car and spend four, uh, 40 I, bucks. I was already at a women's club in, where was I, in Del Mar uh, this morning or over the lunch hour. And then I came here, and now I'm on to the American Legion post in Poway. Oh, right on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've gone to uh, a bunch of, you know, being the only vet in both races. I mean, it doesn't matter really, I guess, in the other race, but I'm the only vet. Veterans are becoming fewer and farther between. There's less and less on the bench. The, like I said, the judge who is retiring that asked me to run is a vet, but. Um, you know, again, I do. I don't say, "Ooh, you must be a veteran." I just think it's a a, a little slice that's a good add uh, oh, yeah. to a person's experience, especially mm-hmm. in a role of judge. And that's why I keep playing it up a bit. I wear my little naval aviator pin there, and uh, um, so I've been going around to a lot of the American Legion VFW posts. And I'll tell you, this is the thing you mentioned on before talking with people. Um, just to sit, I was up at the Fallbrook VFW. All, no surprise, all Marines. Um, <laughs> right. But these guys, they rolled in because I had met Master Gunnery Sergeant. He said, oh, yeah, come by. You know, I make a, a mean um, Bloody Mary. And he wasn't kidding. He made some, a mean Bloody Mary. And so I went up there and, you know, lunchtime on Sunday and a whole bunch of these guys show up. They're all now former Marines, most, uh, you know, retired or not. Uh, some of them out on disability. Every one of them, you know, five, six, seven tours in Fallujah, Ambar Province, um, you name it. Um, it, They're in this environment where they can make the jokes, like they call one guy, oh, that's Rocket. I'm like, he had an RPG go through his leg. I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> but I was talking to this master gunnery sergeant. He said to me, you know, Pete, when we go out to this day, and he's he's got, we call them zipper scars. I mean, he literally got ripped all the way up his body Whoa. by an IED that he stepped on. Um, and, and you just... You just go, man. Where does uh, where do these guys come from? And the answer is, they come from right here. You know, this this is this is why I love this country. I mean, we you know people will go to war um, for what we believe in, and and part of that's the right to vote. So exercise it. But to listen to him, he says, um, when I go out, you know, I always sit with my you know facing the door. He goes, it's just I, I just I can't get beyond the anxiety and that's the only way i can go he goes until i come in here and the vfw up there it's actually they got this really cool bar but it's a little ramshackle place mm-hmm. and he goes but in here with these guys i don't think about that door i don't care because everyone's got each other's and back they, they got each other's back yeah and uh, i talked to another guy who they told me you know he kind of a soft-spoken guy tony was his name and um he they said you know he didn't tell you but he's a former marine uh, recon and then marine raider which is their special forces he said he has seen he used a phrase that they use you know he's stacked more bodies than you can count and i'm like oh my um but he said he was saying to me you know i've just kind of given up on most of this i'm just I just do my thing. And most of these guys came in wearing their leathers and their Harleys, you know, they're, you know, now they've grown the beard and the hair and, and they're looking pretty wild. And they're like, we know that, but it's, uh, it's just letting it go a bit. And he was saying, I just, you know, I'm just focused on this. And I said to him, you know, Tony, the thing that kept you going over there is what we should try to hold on to here, which is look out for the guy next to you. That's what it's all about. Right. If we just look out for each other, we actually show some respect for each other and care about each other Mm -hmm. as a community, you know, and stop this disgusting divisiveness that we're seeing all the time uh, and realize we're all in this together. We can disagree vehemently on all kinds of stuff, but we got to keep the conversation going and know that. You know, things like, do we all want to be safe? Of course. You know, I mean, so let's stop bashing each other over the head about defund the police or, you know, support the police. I mean, we can all agree on certain basic things, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I said that to him, he said, "Okay, I'll keep that in mind. You know, (laughs) um, but it is a core of what that's what made them survive. I know that, uh, which is you can't worry about the higher policies of why you're over there. You're about making sure he comes home next to me. Um, right. I take care of you. You take care of me. We look out for each other. Never leave a brother behind, period. And, you know, we can carry that into the community of, you know, we can go as all the way down when we look in the streets and see these people homeless and we, oh, we should clean the street. Okay, people who are citizens should have the right to walk down the street and not step through human waste. Right. Uh, in the same breath, these people should not be thrown in some concentration camp. But we need to do something to provide a better life for them. No one can tell me when they say, well, it's you know unfair to force them to move. To force them to move off the street, living in literal squalor and disease, uh, that's not good for anyone. It's not good for society. It's not good for the people there. So why can't we all agree that that is not okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, having literal tent, tent encampments along the streets where you can't walk through Balboa Park and feel 
not and and feel safe because you don't know what's behind half these tents. Uh, I mean, that's it's mind boggling to me that we can't all agree that's not good because that's well, it's maybe the pendulum has swung too far again, right? That's part of that pendulum, you know. So how do we have a smart solution to homelessness? And it's a very complex issue, very complex. But you know, I think you've alluded to that. I think it was on our previous podcast how PTSD plays a role. In homelessness. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's one of many factors. Mm-hmm. And again, that's where your background as a veteran gives you additional insight into rendering justice. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, and I don't want to go on too long, but, you know, within the courts, and I'm a big fan of these, we've done these. Uh, it actually was mostly started by a deputy DA, now retired, a close friend of mine, big supporter of mine. (laughs) Um, But it's called the collaborative courts. And in the collaborative courts, we have one for uh, mental health, homeless, vets, and drugs. Um, And so they're all lower level crimes that people have committed in one form or another. Homeless person who committed a low level theft, but the real issue is they're homeless out there. if you can get them into that program, the, the goal is to treat them, you know, monitor them. It, they are very strict programs. The, the Veterans Court is a great example. Um, and in time, move them out of that and then leave the criminal justice system behind so much that literally their charge. Again, these are low level crimes can be dismissed, made gone away because they've now been given the tools to actually move on and become a productive citizen. Uh a, a gentleman who's judge, Roger Crowell, ex-Army guy, started the Veterans Court. I talked to him two years ago when I was running, um, and he he asked me, he said, you know, when we started the Veterans Court, what do you think the recidivism rate was? Now, we use that term a lot in the criminal courts. I mean, and like up at major felony criminals, the recidivism rate is kind of crazy. I mean, we oh, yeah. someone goes to prison, they come back. The recidivism rate is around 70 like percent. I mean, boomerang. yeah, they just, you know, we call it doing life term on the installment plan, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and those people are just hell bent on committing crimes. Uh, and we need to recognize those people and say, no, you're getting removed from society. I'm tired of you victimizing law-abiding citizens. That's got to stop. But when we see someone who, uh, like a veteran, who maybe through a PTSD item or issue is committed a low-level assault or a theft, and we can get them into a program and treat those issues and monitor them closely, and they fa- and they meet with a judge who oversees mm-hmm. the collaborative mm-hmm. courts, and you mess up, you're going to go spend some time in jail. I mean, so there is a, a hammer over their head. And he asked me what that recidivism rate is, and I said, you know, I'm betting it's pretty low, you know, thinking 70% was that, okay, then, you know, low-level crime, probably less. Okay, but that's 25%? He goes, Pete, it's zero. I said, Zero. zero. He goes, not one. In the two years he had been running it, he said, now he's left it. This was about two years ago, maybe a little less. He said he'd left it, and he goes, they've percolated up. Now the judge who's running it is not a veteran. So maybe, is that why? I I don't know, and I would not want to ding them for that. But that's just reality. It's percolated up a little bit, um, but it's still exceptionally low. So the, the read on that is it works. It works. That's so good. why wouldn't we devote resources to that kind of stuff? 
And again, I'm not talking about the ones who are child molesters and rapists. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a different world. I mean, people who are like, get someone off the streets who's got mental health issues, treat their mental health, get them in a program. And it's like, well, that costs money. We're spending a fortune right now. Right, right. I mean, so it's spending it better. It's getting smart on crime. That's what I talk about. Not tough on crime, but smart on crime. Tough is too easy. That's just a a buzz term. Oh, I'm tough on crime. Okay, of course you are. I mean. Yeah. Who isn't? Who's going to get up there and say, well, I'm easy on crime? <laughs> well, maybe George Gascon up there is deci- up in well, L.A. has decided. I, I won't name any names, but often the people that say they're the toughest on crime often are not. Are not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and to recognize these kinds of programs recon- you know, represent – you know, kind of a win-win. We can save money, take someone out of a, a, you know, out of an ongoing, you know, cycle of problems. Uh, and and God, if we could have an, even a recidivism rate of only 25%, we're getting 75% of them to move forward into a productive life. That's a win. Huge. Big win. Mm-hmm. Sadly, Judge Crowell just died last summer. Um because I would have loved to uh, first win the bench and love to do some work in the in the collaborative courts uh, what he started, but um, it's uh, I, you know it's those kinds of things that I think there's reason for hope. You know, we can do some things, and some of these cases we can segue through this system and find ways to handle more of the charges. But you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, the the reality is with the emergency orders coming off. Um, meaning there's no now constitutional right or, you know, statutory right given by the Supreme Court to continue cases out due to the emergency. So now you have an absolute right to be tried within X amount of days. And unless the defendant agrees to waive that time, they must be tried within that number of days. The remedy is dismiss the case. But aren't we near that deadline we now? We are very quickly near yeah. that deadline. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know because I haven't cal- I haven't read I looked at it close enough. If the emergency orders came off tomorrow, does that mean then the thirty day or sixty day time to trial commences, uh, or has it already commenced? I mean, to me, that's that's going to be a big problem when we- they lift it. Whether once those orders come off, we've got a big problem. Whether yeah. it's going to hit in thirty days, sixty days, or right away. Th- it's a big problem. And if they don't waive time, um, which is the defendant's right, it, then we either find them a trial court or dismiss their case. There isn't an option. There isn't a send them to Orange County or something. Um, something must be done. Wow. And maybe that's a mad scramble by the DA's office to resolve these cases at far. They're already. And that's why I say most of the cases that can be resolved have been because I know this and, and I don't fault them. Don't get me wrong. The DA's office has given offers on cases well below what they would have done before to try to move through cases. Yeah, I'll bet. And, and that makes sense. You've got to move these cases. You have to. You may not want to, but you have to. And they did so. And, and they've been doing that. But at a certain point, you know, they're not going to let a second degree murder case go off for probation. Right. And so you either try that person or they're going to walk. It's a big risk. It's a big risk. Yeah. It's a big risk. And again, I don't have those solutions. I just want to be part of the solution. I wonder if some, you know, criminals that are legit guilty but haven't been tried yet, if they can play the game in such a way to – it's almost like a game of chicken. Like I 
I won't extend it. I'm near the deadline, so you either need to try me or release me. And uh, there's no doubt that will happen. Yeah. Absolutely no doubt. It's, you know, and I don't even know that it's, uh, uh, you know, what you might say, play, they play the game. The defense lawyers, you know, look, their job as a defense lawyer is to do whatever is necessary within ethical guidelines in the best interest of your client. And if the answer is to go, you know what, we're going to wait to that time and then not waive time knowing they can't get because we, we, we can read, you know, because I'm in the public defender's office, for example, and I see we've got all these cases that are more serious. They got to get them. They're never going to get to yours. So you're not waiving time. And we're going to take the risk that um, we won't accept that really good offer they've made. We're going to force their hand and see if they can get us to trial. And if they can on that on that X day, then you're going to walk. Mm-hmm. Now, the risk you run is, guess what? We just found a courtroom for you. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And you're like, whoa, 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 I want yeah. that deal. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah no, it's, no, gone. it's gone. Yeah. So there's some. <laughs> but there's so some of that gamesmanship, I'm sure, is is being calculated. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. And you're talking, and we're not talking about, oh, do I get, you know, a fine of $500 or $250? You're talking about, you know, 15 years versus, you know, yeah. we're going to offer you six. I mean, yeah. I mean, six years in prison. I mean, people, oh, that's kind of low. Have you spent one night in jail? I mean, I, I, I've been in that jail, not as an inmate, um, <laughs> but, you know, seeing defendants because I've handled pro per cases and so forth. I, I wouldn't want to spend one night. Oh, not yeah. one. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, it's a scary place to be. And, you know, the people say, oh, my God, he only got a year. I mean, like the cop. I'm like, OK, a year in and, and by definition, he'll be what we call ad sec administrative segregation, which means he's in essentially solitary confinement for a year because they can't have him in the prison in the regular population. He's a cop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He'll get shanked. There's yeah. no doubt about it. And so, uh, you know, to, for people that say to me, oh, he only got a year. I'm like, have you spent you want to spend a year in jail? Yeah. Have, have at it. Right. Um, it's it's not a pretty place for some people who are been in and out. You know, piece of cake. You know, I oh I've been there before. I'll go back and get you know three cot or a cotton three hots and a cot. You yeah. know, I mean, <laughs> but um, you know, so we you know the criminal justice system is an interesting place. Um, but you know, again, it's not just the. I mean, that's half of our court's business. Half. I mean, civil jury trials, you know, probate issues, family law I talked about, juvenile cases that, you know, uh, you know, these are all been subject to the difficulties caused by the pandemic. So that's why I say I would not have wanted that. We have a new presiding judge as of January of this year. So uh, he, Judge Smith, is coming out of, you know, he's now in charge of the courts. Uh, Interesting place to be because technically judges don't report to him. He doesn't hire and fire them because they're elected or appointed by the governor or elected by the people, right? So it's kind of an administrative supervisor, which is a difficult position. I, yeah. I You know, it's kind of like I need you to go here, and what if they say I don't want to go there? I mean, I'm ordering you. Well, you can't really do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so when one has to operate in that amongst all of the issues that the court has had to deal with, um, I wouldn't want that job right now. Uh, you know, and, and before him, the, the previous presiding judge is the one who brought us through the pandemic and no one has had, we've not experienced that in our lifetime. Um, so any attempt to criticize what could have, should have, would have done, I step away from, cause you know what, that's, 
unheard of right. crises. Right. Um, you know, she she the the former presiding is worried about you know keeping people safe, um, court employees not getting COVID. I, I mean, I, I couldn't begin to imagine what she's dealt with for two full years or right. did deal with. So. Um, you know, for so I don't want to ever say what a cause might be. I just know we've ended up with this ungodly amount of backlog that is now the next crisis for the courts. Um, if the pandemic was a crisis, well, now here's our new one is the spin out from it. And we've you know, we don't have a choice but to deal with it. And and you're ready to go. You know, I there would be a lot easier things to do. Um than what I'm doing, you know, I could do what I'm doing right now. And as a judge who retired last year, who was head of family law, presiding family law, Margo Lewis Hoy, is, you know, a little plug, big supporter, um, and it has endorsed me. But she said to me, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do this job? I mean, and I said, it's not so much a want. I just don't feel like I can walk away. When Judge Joe called me, I said, how do I say no to that? Right. And I know that sounds so, oh, my God, what a boy scat, you know, like poly purebred, whatever you want to throw at me, you know, I'm fine. Uh, That's true. That's just the truth. It's just who I am. I can't walk away from a system that I think I can help. Because you're passionate about justice. It's been your career, your life's work. Now here's an opportunity to really – Kind of go out on top, you know, it's, and, and help out. And, yeah, and and you're right in that for 31 years, it's a system I've been in, and if I can't devote something, you know, something that I think I have to offer to help, yeah, then shame on me. So there is a part of it that's self-serving. Uh, it's my way of giving back to a system that has been everything I've done for 31 years. Well, and even now, right now, you're doing that in your private practice, working with young attorneys. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so you're kind of doing it anyway. You know? that, that's true. And yeah. I, you know what? If this doesn't work out, I'm totally fine with that. Sure. As the administrator of this firm said uh, to me, Pete, you know, personally, we'll do everything we can to support you. I hope you lose. Uh, <laughs> I said, I think that's a compliment. Yeah. Uh, but. But, uh, but I, you know what? I could be in a much worse place than being able to just stay with this group because it's a great firm. Anybody needs family law work, Cajun Miles, there you go. There's okay. their plug. Um, <laughs> but they really are great lawyers, uh, a great environment. Uh, two women owned and operated. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's an awesome firm. And I would I, I was so excited to start, you know, working with their lawyers and and, and then to something we didn't tell you know, I want to grow some practice areas for them. And that's one of the reasons they want me to come in. Um, one of which and I hope I don't keep going on forever here, but we'll I'll go as long as you like. All right. Is, uh, you know, we talked about this, not just to be, you know, the chief trial counsel work with their younger lawyers, um, because I think I have a lot to add. You know, in family law, it's a little looser, it tends to be, and some of them get a little hung up on things like the evidence code. And, you know, as a trial lawyer, criminal trial lawyer in particular, I mean, you, you've you got to be well-versed in the evidence code and working with it on your feet every day. So, you know, I can play that back and help them with those issues and how to deal with the courts and, you know, when, oh my God, the judge guys, okay, I, I think I have a different view on things that might help you here, how you might present this motion issue, whatever it may be. Um, and, and so that all by itself is really exciting to me. But then we talked about a couple of areas 
I, you know, there's a lot of things I could do, but I want to focus on one area that I think is really a need. It's elder abuse, but in the civil litigation arena, filing lawsuits on behalf of seniors who've been defrauded or abused or whatever the case may be. I've done that in the criminal arena. And what I know is in really egregious cases, they get criminal prosecution. It takes a long time, sometimes way too long. Um, But there are cases that kind of go under the table because, well, you know, there's too much complexity here. It may or may not be criminal action, but there's still enough grounds there for a civil lawsuit. And the night we have this thing called the ADACPA, the Elder Abuse and Dependent Adult Care Act, whatever. Um, But that has some interesting provisions to it, not the least of which is if you sue somebody for elder abuse and prevail, not only do you prevail on whatever uh, the damages are, but attorney's fees are included. Mm. So, you know, there's a way to kind of pay for the those actions on people who couldn't otherwise really cover it. Um, and you'd be amazed at the level of, I'll call it crap out there, what people are doing, in particular to seniors, and it's become worse during the pandemic. The scams, the sweetheart deals, uh, they're, they're just rampant. And if I've seen one, I've seen dozens of people, sometimes family members, distant ones come in, someone who's in a facility, but oh, by the way, they own their house. Well, mm. it's not nothing special, except it's in San Diego, yeah. which last I checked, our median price is 800 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find a way to get them to sign off on a quit claim deed. And all of a sudden, there goes $800,000 worth of home that they didn't even know what they were doing. Um, do, you ever, do you ever watch Better Call Saul? I have not seen that. I've seen it advertised on Netflix. We've spent more time paying attention. I think it's Netflix or yeah, Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I haven't seen an episode. But, or have you seen Breaking Bad at all? I've seen a little bit of that. Okay. Yes. So, you know, Better Call Saul is the the, the prequel. Oh, I didn't know okay, that. And okay. And Saul, I'm going to get back. It connects to elder, elder oh, abuse. All right. But Saul Goodman's real name is Jimmy McGill. And when he practiced law, he got traction in his career working on behalf of senior citizens. And there was a big case in the Better Call Saul called the Sandpiper case, which was a um, uh, an assisted living home that was nickel and diming uh, their, their residents for all these fees that right. didn't seem like that much, but it added up a lot. And they exactly. had facilities in multiple states and it turned into this really big class action lawsuit. Okay. And you know, again, it better call Saul's, you know, kind of a crazy show. So, yeah. But the point is, is that when I was watching it, I was like, yeah, I remember Pete was doing th- something with elder abuse. Yeah. And, and I'm realizing, okay, better call Saul's kind of crazy, but this is a legit issue. Yes. You know, and there are people that are being scammed and especially where, uh, to qualify for certain government programs, you have to have like lesser assets. Right. So there are incentives to, to I guess, liquidate assets. Yeah. So then people can be on those programs, but it might be manipulated by the healthcare provider. Oh yeah. To distort it, to maximize their position at the expense of the patient. Absolutely. And their own nest egg. Yes. And it can be. I mean, this is a big deal. And these elderly folks, they don't read the fine print. No. No. And it's, like I said, it's rampant in every area, whether it be seniors in their own home that, 
you know, are reliant on some people or people who are in a facility. And that may be, a, you know, skilled nursing is the highest level, but it could be an assisted living or a board and care. And they have access to people who, <laughs> at least my distorted view because of what I've been doing for 10 years now uh, and then even as a DA is, you know, elder abuse criminal prosecution. It seems like every other person walking in the door is one of these, which is how do I separate that person from their money? And I I, I have a sense that there's this attitude of, oh, my God, they're going to die and yeah. I could really use the money. Yeah. Um, as if that's acceptable. And, you know, you just see stuff that is mind-boggling what what people will do to people generally but in particular to vulnerable seniors that really boils my blood and i know you know that most egregious cases you know we can get them picked up by the criminal because i did it as a da and as an ag um but there's a lot that you know let's say someone you know what we call undue influence you know someone wheedles themselves into the life of somebody ends up essentially getting them to sign over assets and so forth. You know, the court has ruled that undue influence alone, without blatant fraud or misrepresentation, it is not a crime. Uh, and so the criminal authorities, the law enforcement, DA, AG, said, won't go anywhere with that case um, because it's not a crime. But who's going to run to the, you know, to help with yeah. civil litigation. And there are quite a few, not quite a few, but there are a few lawyers, law firms have kind of made a niche of suing nursing homes, basically. Why? Nursing homes, big entities, big dollars, see mm -hmm. some really egregious thing in a nursing home with people not being cared for adequately, they sue. Okay. But what, what about all these people who've had life savings wheedled away from them, a home, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and you can go, well, you win that money back or at least some of it. I mean, my my thought of this is if we can get in there, drop a lawsuit, and then there are provisions that people tend not to push on, is with a senior, I'm going to get priority in a courtroom because the statutes provide that I get priority and start pushing the pressure onto these people to go, you better resolve this. And why is that good? So I get money? No, it means you're paying my attorney's fees. And you're paying back the money. It may not be a lot in the grand scheme of things, but a couple thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars to a senior in a facility who may only have a year or two left in life to get their money back uh, or at least a large portion of it uh, because you were able to move fast, much faster, you know, that you can with some of the mm -hmm. vehicles available. So, you know, this, these are the things I've been kind of wrestling with. Of what This is an interesting area I'd like to, yeah, to develop. Um and where we go with it, you know, like I said, with some of the f lawyers in this firm, I mean, I can expose them to different areas than they have known. They're mostly doing family law. Some want to branch out. And uh, this is a way to do that so that I'm not just running as a solo guy. Now I've got this law firm that's totally psyched behind it. And so that's one area. And the other is because I've seen this uh, medical or licensing defense, which is largely held, you know, if you're a doctor, psychologist, nurse, um, you know, they like to, they come after your license if there's some level of negligence or whatever. And, you know, that's handled ultimately, ultimately by a division in my office. It's but it's all in the administrative courts. And I know there's not many lawyers out there working in this area. And I what I know, though, 
and it's anecdotal. There was someone who came to me years ago and we talked about it, who's a psychologist. And as he said, what wouldn't I pay to save my license? I mean, it's, it's my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I realize there's a real need for, for people in that. And in the administrative courts, which I've done work in as well, completely separate from the Superior Court, is a whole different can of worms. I mean, it's a lot more informal. Uh, the administrative judges are not. They're appointed um, by, you know, the the county so or the state, as the case may be. But they're basically it's basically like applying for a job. There's no a government, a governor appointment or election or anything like that. So these are I'm sure great. But I've I've seen, wow, this is a little loose and fast in here. And, yeah. and to bring some serious lawyering into that to people who are going, you know, I'm a nurse. And if I lose my license because of what they're alleging, you know, I'm done. I, right. all, I've, all I've trained to do. And again, if there's a mistake made, uh, then they live with it. But too many times it's that apparatus of the state mode. I mean, people need help. I mean, because the threat is either accept our plea or face going to trial and guess what we have unlimited resources yeah which has always struck me is and then suddenly they're no longer yeah no longer a nurse yes and they're accused of something that they didn't really even do they just happen to be part of the system at the time right or it's misinterpreted um, or they made a mistake right made a mistake i mean they there was a case now it's not here it was in the east coast a nurse was charged uh i probably won't get this exactly right but i think it was she she was exhausted had other issues going on she grabbed the wrong vial and administered drugs to a patient in a facility that was the wrong stuff and killed them yeah. And you're like, woof, you better be ready. My wife and I were just talking about this case. Yes. And she was prosecuted criminally. Criminally. And she's in jail. In jail. And it was a mistake. It yes. was an error. A and bad error. And right. maybe she should lose her license. Look, at some point, you know, yeah. you, you know, that's a, a bridge too far. You, you've, you know, that's just so egregious. Um, and the facility, you know, there's big money to be paid. But criminal, go sit in jail as a nurse um, for trying to do your best Mm -hmm. and screwing up, Um, you know, boy, again, I always like to think, what are really the consequences of that? No surprise. Nurses are starting to go, okay, you know what? Just like the cop on the street, I'm not responding to that call so that what? I can get charged with a crime for pulling my weapon on somebody you know what i'm gonna wait till we have more enforcement here you know back in the day i mean you know a domestic violence call cop in a solo car shows up here's a a scuffle they're going in right now the incentive is oh no i don't know what's behind there but i'm waiting till i get four more cars here and then in the meantime, what's happening behind those closed doors? Mm. And that's that's why I say, I mean, be careful what you're trying to create because you have to understand what how that plays out. Now, whether it's a cop in the street or a nurses who start to say, you know what, it's not worth it. They don't pay me enough money to work these hours <laughs> right. to then what? Get charged with a crime? Yeah, yeah. If I make a mistake? Yeah. I mean, I'm incredibly sorry, but I'm sitting in jail? Yeah. You know, that's what I say, boy, and it, it is, again, that bit of being a defense lawyer, 
knowing what it means to face the apparatus of the state and to know to never treat that lightly. And that's my concern about people who've only been a prosecutor. Yeah. And I can speak to this because I was one for 20 years. I mean, I get it. But you've got to have an appreciation that that is such a huge force coming down on one person to feel like the entire state and every, you know, and there is no cost. I used to always think I'm I, I'm a custodian of the people's money. I mean, people say, well, whatever, let's just go order that. I said, like, you know, that costs a lot of money. Yeah. Well, you're not paying it. I said, I'm a citizen, so I'm paying for it. I, right. I mean, we're not going to, you know, have some expert, you know, do with something that's worthless to me and spend all this money just because it's not coming out of my checkbook. Um, but there, I, I guarantee you, there is a mentality of, well, that's that funny money. You know, it's, yeah. it's government money. Well, good on you for, for having that integrity. Well, and part of it just takes being around, being a defense lawyer, kind of seeing it enough to go – no, I see what that means. And, you know, when when a prosecution comes in, uh, you know, I'm going to give them all the deference in the world that they are entitled to, but no more. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, let them go, you know, we're the only one who wears white hats, so we get away with whatever. No, that defense lawyer is doing a pretty hell of a job, too, representing their client as best they can. And that's what the system needs to have is that balance. And I think that's what a lot of people worry about currently in the criminal justice system. It's not balanced. There isn't right. a balance. There, there is such a heavy hand of the state. And that doesn't mean that you can make that go away, what, and give the same level of resource. I don't know how to do that. It's just a recognition of it. And let's start with that, that understand that when I issue a case against somebody and I decide to charge, you know, 17 charges, most of them which are duplicative and have a huge bail amount to go, OK, what really happened here? Mm -hmm. But you're using the system and do not think for a second this does not happen. Prosecutors charge multiple crimes, whatever that can fit the facts. Because it's a leverage. It's a bargaining tool. We'll let you plead to one, but you're going to accept the sentence where, you know, and I go, wow. I mean, that's because the alternative is, okay, go to trial and face all 17 and see where that lands you. And again, that starts to, you know, really uh, skew the matter. It is exactly why we got to the zero bail, because we would arrest people, get a bail, and then Try to pump it up. Why? If they're in custody, they're going to plead. Because the sooner they plead, the sooner their time starts to count, and they're going to get out. And how many people have pled guilty, even though they didn't do it? We don't know. But they did. You know what? They gave me a deal. Put me on probation for three years, serve you know credit for the time I've already served, and I'm out. Okay, except this minor detail. You didn't do it. Yeah. I mean— and that's we've you know the defense mode the the defund the people saw that and they're not wrong that was happening I know it was happening I've seen it happen in person that leverage of high bail will force the plea but that can't be the reason we do that no it we, never should be the two reasons danger to the community and to ensure they return to court right there's no part of that that says and to help coerce a plea. Right. But that's happened. It has definitely happened. And it's happened more often than you care than we care to think. And again, can I change that? Well, it's already gone to the zero. Bail. What I see is both sides of that. 
And that's what I hope is the perspective we want to put in a judge yeah. on the bench. That's a huge. So at least see it. A huge selling point for you is that you've seen both sides. Yeah, I hope. I hope. <laughs> I hope we can convince all 1.9 or yeah. 1 million or even 600,000 of them out so, there. So um, how can people reach you? They want to ask you a question or contact you. What's the best way? Yeah, the best way is through my website. is easy one www pete for judge all all words no no numbers in there. So pete f o r all together pete dot com. Yeah, sounds pretty easy to me. How can you forget that? I, I hope not. There's. Uh, yeah, you know, sure enough, I had a, a traffic commissioner is also filed in my seat. So I have two opponents, uh, and his name is Peter, his first name. So kind of wedged in on my brand of Pete's, but he doesn't call himself <laughs> Pete, so I'm the only Pete out there. So PeteForJudge.com, and there's a way where someone can uh, either email or you can just write uh, anything they want to write. Yeah, uh, fill it, out a it, form and yeah, hit submit. It's, it's a, you know, uh, ask a question or submit a question, whatever it is, right through okay. the website. It comes right to me. Um, so that's probably the easiest way I'd go on about my, you know, I, I give out my if you ever see an email from me, it has my personal email address on it and my cell phone. So I take calls all the time. But uh, that's the easiest way. Okay. For, um, and you're off to the VFW tonight. Tonight to go see uh, the the boys down at the Poway VFW. So, uh, yeah, I'm in town tonight, which is nice. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. So you've been in Vista. You've been in Del Mar. You've been, you've been yeah. covering the whole county. Uh, South Bay. I'm endorsed by Chula Vista P- Police Officer Association, by the way. Um, you have been a very impressive endorsement list. It is it's, purposeful in that two things. One, I, I have some organizations that are of note um, that because they wanted to interview and so forth. So I certainly pursued that and I'm honored to have it. One in particular, the Lawyers Club, which is – their mission is to elevate the role of women in law and society. It is an incredibly powerful, strong organization that I've watched grow from, you may remember, Congressman Lynn Shank, if yeah. you remember that yeah. name, yeah. Uh, and Justice Judith McConnell. Mm-hmm. Two women, uh, believe it or not, there are some people older than me, um, <laughs> that started out in this industry were told, you know, yeah, yeah, you can't be lawyers, you can be secretaries, even though they had a law degree. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and way back when, and and they years ago um, bonded together with some others and formed this group as kind of a mutual support. It now is I, I don't know the numbers, well over six, I and mean, they might have a thousand. You know, uh, lawyers, uh, they don't limit themselves. I mean, it is predominantly women, but they don't. You know, you can and I did join as a male, um, and they're very active. A very powerful, very bright, uh, and I give them credit for being a, a force, and they have become a force in the legal industry, absolutely, in this town. Um, so uh, they interviewed all of us and did a fairly extensive vetting, and I was honored to be receive their support uh, from right the Lawyers on. Club. Yeah, well, so it's, make it, it's making me remember the the movie about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes, you know when she was the only woman in the class. Absolutely, you know. And, and there's some of these women I'm meeting. I just, and I say to them, I'm just I'm blown away to watch what you've done. And I go, and it's not just me going, oh, hooray for women. That benefits me as as it does you by elevating women. I think we elevate ourselves. Yeah, uh, and and I, I think you would agree with that. So. 
for me, it's somewhat selfish. I think it elevates us all by, you know, look, I've got a daughter and a wife. They're both professionals. And I, I've always said I don't want them to ever feel that there's an obstacle in front of them because they're female. Right. For, and for no other reason. And exactly. the same with your daughter, as mm-hmm. you've told me all the great things she's doing. Clearly, you've taught her that and she's learned it. Yeah. Because she's going hard. And uh so that's, um, you know, that's one. And the Chula Vista police officers is, you know, completely different group. And uh, the Lincoln Club of San Diego, which is nonpartisan, but tends to be rather conservative business interests. Um, they've endorsed me. The um, uh, Latino American Political Association has endorsed me. So I have these organizations, but my real focus is on individuals, people who absolutely know me. Mm-hmm. You know, so guys like Bob Brewer, who who was the U.S. attorney here up until recently. Um, His wife, who's a big supporter, but cannot endorse because of her role. She's in a she's a retired federal judge, the first Latina judge ever appointed to the federal district court and was chief judge here in the federal district court here in in Southern California. Uh, she's now retired, but she's in a position of uh, with a private mediation group, and they don't want them to be political. So yeah, sure. one could find out her name. It wouldn't be hard. <laughs> um, but she's supportive. Um, and, um, you know, to the, the number two in the district attorney's office up until recently, the assistant district attorney, now he just retired. He's endorsed me, notwithstanding there's a young deputy DA in my race. The mm-hmm. chief of the North County Division of the district attorney's office, I tried a case against him in my private practice. He is not only a friend, but has endorsed me, notwithstanding the deputy DA in this race. Um, you know, and a bunch of others, Rear Admiral Pat McGrath, uh, Captain Lindsay, former head of CO of uh, Special Warfare Group Buds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've known him since the day we showed up at ROTC orientation back at Duke. Uh, Neil Smith, former member of SEAL Team 6, recently retired from CEO of Comcast. Oh, wow. And is now a board member at Qualcomm. And he, too, the three of us, all joined ROTC 42 years ago. Nice. And, you know, I take great pride in that because these are people who have known me that whole time and stand well, behind me. So I've and I've tried to do that, I you know, to reach both sides. I, you know, so I've got, you know, prosecutors and Randy Mize, the public defender has endorsed me. So Oh, right on. People go, wow. how does that I'm go because I think he knows what I bring to the table, the well, things all, we're talking about. And all the the groups you share with me is a pretty diverse group as well. It, yes. You know, politically diverse, ethnically diverse. Gender diverse, everything. So I know I was going down the list, and you know our mutual friend Damon Mosler was on that list too. Yeah, so, he sure was. You know, he sure was. You know, so I saw him a few weeks ago. So he was very excited about your campaign. He and, is a great friend and a great person and an outstanding uh, lawyer. Mm-hmm. The, the district attorney's office is left is less now that he's retired. He has a, had a full career there and did a lot of uh, really good work. Um, he's a great guy. I agree, 100%. How did you meet him? We went to college together. Oh, and, I didn't know and that. And we were in the same fraternity. Oh, so you and, know him going and, back. Yeah, we know each other pretty well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as we're adults and family, you kind of drift apart. Yeah. And every once in a while, you cross paths. And, That's right. But, uh, yeah, he's a... A1 quality guys always been that way. And uh, when he decided to go and uh, be a district attorney, I was like, hey, right on. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, he's been there a long time. He's been in a lot of important positions. He was head of special operations, uh, which is always a funky unit in the, because you investigate cop shootings and internal affairs type stuff. And, uh, you know, he he did some really interesting work. If anyone wanted to research, they could find out. I mean, <laughs> Damon, but he's because he's that guy. He, you know, he doesn't uh, get caught up in politics. He just you know, stuck to the mandate of what a, a public prosecutor yes. must do and, and should always do. And Damon never strayed from that. Um, I think the world of him. He's a he's a great guy. And yeah, it's it's a real pleasure to have. He was in my class when we joined the DA's office. There weren't that many of us, but uh, we we became DA's together back in 1992. Because you guys were, what do you, is it a freshman class or a rookie class? Yeah, what do you yeah, call yeah, it? I, we just called it the class. I mean, okay. I think it was, a, at that time, there one maybe one a year. Um, and so Rear Admiral Pat, Pat McGrath, who is just retired also from the DA's office. He had a full career as a DA, but then stayed in the reserves. He and I actually flew together in the Navy. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then we joined the DA's office in that same class. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it was uh, interesting. So, uh, uh, you know, so Pat's a, a big backer. Brent Neck, who's the one who ran the collaborative courts, who's now retired. Um and, uh, you know, so I take great pride in long-term deputy DAs who know what the work is there and what someone like me represents to them. And, you know, and I try to bring that out again. I don't demean my uh, opponent as a deputy DA, but, you know, I look at it this way. Years and years ago, the most senior judge on the bench still, uh, David Gill, I, I st- I'll make him mad if he hears heard this. I, I think he's eighty five plus years old. I mean, he's but he's still probably trying more cases than anybody. He really? just keeps going. Wow, he's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and so Judge Gill used to. I assume he still does it, but did the Eagle Scout Board of Reviews for one of the districts here of the Eagle, of the of the Boy Scouts. And I and as he used to say, to know him is to be on one of his boards. And he knew <laughs> that I was a Navy pilot. Okay, you're going to be on my mm-hmm. Navy pilot board or and lawyer board. So I'd get a call. You got to come in for this young man applying to be an Eagle Scout, and they got to go through their board of review. So that's a lot of things I did. But I tried cases in front of him, and and on and on and on. So. Um, um, God, where was I even going with this? I spun off on the Eagle Scout thing, and uh, mm, I completely lost my train of thought. It shows that I'm <laughs> We're human. Having too much fun here. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. It probably couldn't have been too much too important. So no worries. Uh, it's. Um, it, but getting back to, I mean, all of these people. Um, it, it means a lot to me after all of those years to have. And I say this to anyone who comes is, oh, yeah, I'll be delighted to endorse you. And I'm like, that's more than just words. I, I, I really appreciate that at my core because it means that you're backing what I'm standing for. And, and that's I don't take that lightly, not from anyone, not from any organization. I wrote that to the lawyers club that, you know, it's more than just an honor. It's not like, OK, great. Check in the block. I mean, that means a lot to me. Um, you know, I, I I try to remain and hope I I can promise I will remain humble if I were to be elected. I'm hum. I'd like to think I'm humble now. Um, 
but I never want to lose sight of the fact that you put on this robe, it's not some magical, you know, gift here that makes you a smarter or more important than anyone. It's just a role to fill, an important role, yes. Mm-hmm. And I never want to forget not only where I come from, but all of these things I've done and the people that have meant to me, because I think that's what would make a good judge. I guess that's as simple as that. And and I would like, that's what I would want to see in a judge. And I've seen a lot all over the state, uh, up and down. And there are some who are outstanding, many of them. Uh, there are some who I want to say, why don't you just take the robe off and go home? Because you clearly are not in, enjoying this position. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I they're either testy or arrogant or think they know more than everyone in the courtroom want to prove it. And I just don't understand that mentality i never have um maybe that's part of why i felt the need to run is you know because i won't be like that i mean I, i want lawyers to lawyer i mean help me make a decision that's right by doing your job Mm. And I'm not going to sit there and become, you know, the the super prosecutor. To, you know what? I'll just handle this case for you and tell you how to do it or the defense lawyer and tell you how to do it. The answer is you do that job. That's what the system is. It's an adversarial system. We can debate whether that's good or bad, but it is what it is. That's we have decided a long time ago that the best way to get to the truth is through the adversarial system of two sides of yeah. well-trained lawyers grilling the witnesses to reveal the truth for 12 people to figure out. I mean, that's the purity of our jury trial system. And I loved it. I've loved it all these years. And, you know, I want to keep it going. Um, and that's why I worry about you know, cracks in the foundation that I begin to see. So anyway, I, uh, (laughs) I feel like I've talked your ear off. No, this is good. uh, I mean, I think I, hopefully our audience has enjoyed this. Um, we put them all to sleep. They're gone. We're we're actually at two, two hours and 53 minutes. Yeah. See right up there on the screen. So, so anyways, wow. Thanks. I mean, hopefully you're going to still make your appointment at the oh, VFW. Yeah, no, no, we're good. We're, we're good in that regard. I'm just thinking, wow, how... Uh, See, time flies when it, you're having fun. It does. And I, believe me, this has been all my pleasure, but I, uh, you know, I think, ah, Lee, how do I break that down? I can't, uh, <laughs> you know, get little snippets there. Nobody, someone will look at that and go, well, I'm not watching no, that for no, 250. What I do is I... Lately, I've been doing better at this. I, I split them into little snippets. Oh, nice. So nice. I'll probably break them down by question or by topic. Oh, that's perfect. And then they're like more bite-sized. But, yes. But, you know, the bite sizes are still big bites. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I said, uh, I'm not. No, what I'm good. trying to do is get out all my talking now because I truly believe that the most important attribute amongst everything else of a judge is being able to listen. Yes. Because, you know, again, I always it's not a story. It's just a a fact, a fun fact. (laughs) A a legitimate study came. I think it's out of Johns Hopkins. Um, And and it was a psychologist that did this, but looked at, you know, the criminal justice system in this form. And they took low level crimes. I assume they're like either traffic infractions or something like that. But they divided everyone into, you know, took this group of people, the study group and divided them into three. The first group would plead not guilty. And I mean, this is what they decided to do. And then they told them later how this would work. You go plead not guilty and your case will be dismissed. Okay, bonus. Yeah. Next group, you plead guilty and whatever happens, happens. Um, 
you know, whatever the judge says, you're fine, or et cetera. Um, the third group would plead not guilty and, you know, go to trial or, or whatever. Um, and so then the question was they then asked the three about their f- perception of the fairness of the justice system. What do you think was the least amongst the three groups? Who thought it, who, who weighed it lowest on the fairness realm? Well, probably the ones that that got off, right? That they, they, exactly they pleaded innocent and then no trial, right? And they just said, "Okay, you can you can go," right? Because they You're just dismissed. realized it's all a farce. Yeah, in, in that example, exactly. Yeah, right. And it's yeah. you know it's it's but the, and the ones that rated the system the best as far as fairness were which one. I assume the ones that went to trial because then they got to see it play out. Yeah. Um, And the answer is that the ones that pled guilty and then got to tell the court what happened. Right. So maybe that's kind of a hybrid, if you will, because they felt that at least they got to have their story told. And someone was listening. And someone actually listened. They were heard. They were heard. Yeah. And, and, And the whole, of course, point of that is... You know, and and maybe if done its best way as a trial, and I don't know if it was not guilty and they were given options. I I, I don't know if it went to trial, but I, I mean, I'm certainly screwing up the the true study because I think it was a little cleaner than what I laid it out to. But the takeaway, of course, is what you've hit on: is what matters most to people is to feel like they've been heard. They'll live with the consequences. Just feel like I didn't get railroaded, or you didn't just slough it off. It's Here's the story about my situation because courts, which I love about this is all real life. None of this is TV made up stuff until we start putting, you know, the the live camera thing for, you know, crime and punishment or whatever story. But seriously, I mean, this is real life stuff, real people whose lives are gone through whatever's going on. And most people just want the opportunity to say, but your honor, here's what happened. Okay. Yeah. And, and they'll live with the consequences. They just want to feel like they've been hurt. And someone listened and took into account whatever it is their position. And I think that's a great lesson for all of us, certainly any of us who presume to be a judge is – and notwithstanding uh, congested courts, ridiculous calendars, like how do you even get through these cases? I mean that's the tension I'm prepared to wrestle with is I got to get through a calendar here. But I can't ever miss the fact that every one of these people may only be in this court one time in their life. Right. And they've, I've got to do my best to make sure they walk out going, well, I didn't like that debate that fine. But you know what? That was fair. I, I mean, I felt like I got to say my side and I can live and, with that. And they know the truth. And they know the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. But they want yeah. to tell their story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they don't want it reduced down to... You know, how many times I've watched, you know, like a plea being taken. Of course, you got the lawyer who's, you know, the, my client, and they're like, eh, sir, do not speak. You need to talk to your lawyer. But what you see in that is I just want this judge to know. And, of course, what we sometimes you got to be careful. You might say things actually hurt you. So you've got a lawyer, you know, talk to them before you, you know, we you get up there and say anything. But what you see in that, in my mind, is, um, you know, is to the recognition too many of us in the system just see these huge numbers and forget that every number is a real life. 
And I don't care if it's traffic court, small claims. I mean, these people have a – to them, it's the most important thing in the world right now. Right. And they just want to be heard. And that gets harder the more congested we get, which goes back to your, you know, yeah, we do need more judges, no, more courtrooms. This um, this county has grown immensely since uh, those numbers that we are still stuck with. Oh, I yeah. Mean, so at some point, real justice is being sacrificed. Um, access to justice is. If, if we can't give people... At least sufficient time. I mean, you know, look, any one of us could walk in, you get someone like me, they're going to talk for two hours. <laughs> um, like, wow, uh, that's not going to work. But I mean, they've got to be given and you've got to find a way to go, look, I want you to make your point. I'm going to give you, you know, and find the, uh, you know, the way so they can have their, their, their peace been said. And if we do that, if we can do that, that's what I think real success is, is people feel like, you know, the courts work. I got to say my piece, and I'm okay, I'm okay with the result. I think most cases, the vast majority of people will be okay with that. Right, I agree with you. Yeah, it's um, everyone deserves their day in court, as they say. They right? do, they do. I mean, that's not just a phrase. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it has real life to it. I right. mean, if you're facing, you know, a, a civil lawsuit or a crime. Um, or you have a family situation. I mean, you want your day in court. Mm-hmm. And um, some people don't want their day. They just want it to go away. <laughs> yeah. And I get that. Yeah. Um, you know, but at the end, I've always said if lawyers, if there's anything we do, and it, it, is, it is no more and no less than solve problems. Right. That's what, a, that's yeah. what we're here for. And right. a judge is another one to facilitate the solving of those problems. I mean, everything else... Be, gets caught up in the yeah. machinery of whatever system we have. That's an interesting have. way to think of it. But it's about problem solving. Yeah. There's no reason for it to exist elsewise. Correct. Yeah. None. If we have no problems, there's no need for court. So once we get rid of all the problems, <laughs> we'll all go and retire. Um, but even with crime, I mean, crime is a problem. I mean, when someone commits a theft, you've taken something you don't own from someone else. That's a problem. How are we going to resolve that? Right. I mean... So crime in its essence is no different than any other issue that might end up before the court. So anyway, again, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm overstaying no, no, my no, welcome. No, it's all good. No, you're not. Not okay. at all. But, you know, we've gone for three hours. Yeah, so that's, 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 that's good. Yeah, I figured, OK, I'm uh, okay. I'm looking to break a record here. Yeah, it's all right. No, actually, the world record for the John Riley Project was uh, one of the candidates for Poway City Council uh, was John Carson. Oh, he and I. This is in 2018. We were here for three and a half hours. Wow! But we talked about Poway stuff. We talked about baseball. We talked about rock and roll. We talked about everything. Wow! And we had a fun time. Well, that's so there's, good. That's the beauty of this podcast is that there is no time limit, um, and we can talk as long as we feel like talking, and as long as people want to enjoy watching or listening, they can. Yeah, check and, in, and, check and the out. End, and people have done that. They'll check in, check out. Yeah. Meanwhile, other people will see the recorded versions. Or they'll listen to the recorded version, and we're going to break up the video into little chunks. And pe- yeah. So hopefully not just those that enjoyed the live stream today, but many others will enjoy the recorded version up through the middle of May when they make their important decisions. Yeah. That, uh, uh, 
Well, we've touched on all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's wonderful. Then if, you know, you break it up because people, I think, would be daunting uh, yeah. to look at three hours. I'm yeah, they don't want to hit the play button because yeah, that's yeah. like, it's like, oh, my so, gosh. But we'll break them into like some chunks, like 10-minute pieces, 15-minute pieces. Oh, beautiful. So it'll beautiful. all work out just right. Yeah. Well, I'll uh, find a way if you share that with me because I'll put it out there and make sure everyone knows this is on the John Riley Project. Yeah, when it'll be on YouTube. So, yeah, I'll yeah. give you the links when we're all done. Excellent. Because I, I really meant it. I, I think what you do here is is enormous. I just I want it to keep growing. Um, it, it is a communication with the community. And I love that. Yeah, um, it's cool. It's a lot of fun, this project. I meet a lot of interesting people. I, you know, you and I know each other from before. Yes. But I've met a lot of new people, people that have become my friends, like Pete Neal, who's been here on the podcast. Yeah, I've seen him. And, I've seen uh, a few of his. And a lot of other folks. So it's it's a it's a great project. And it there's not enough of this sort of conversation at a local level. Right. Um, there's not enough long-form conversation. Um and I think it ultimately it serves as sort of like a, a, a public forum, a community forum yeah. that's really healthy, I think. I am very healthy. It's, you know, and I understand people have short attention spans. We maybe have been driven that way by yeah. social media. But it's, uh, you know, when I go to some of these events and they're like, OK, you have three minutes. I'm like, three minutes. <laughs> I barely introduced myself. Um, but you find a way and scream out a bunch of stuff and, you know, so be it. But it's... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll never forget, I won't, uh, I'll, I'll tell that, deputy city attorneys um, had a Zoom call, you know, with all the candidates, I assume all, they invited us all. But it was all on Zoom, so you get up and it's just a little box you're looking in and, you know, we give you, I think they said two minutes or three minutes, I'm like... <clears throat> okay, I, I don't know what we're really going to accomplish here in two or three minutes, but you know, say whatever you want to say and then move. And then thank you. You're done. Like, wow. Okay. Bye. What do you choose to emphasize when you're only given two minutes? I try to focus like any public speaker on my audience who I'm in front of and trying to touch, you know, some of it is kind of automatic, like you're running for judge. So it starts with, well, who are you? What are you doing? Okay. Name, what seat I'm running for and the proverbial. So why do you want to be a judge mode mm -hmm. and why are you qualified? Well, I mean, yeah, my little resume that, you know, that's hard to get through in two to three minutes. Um, but then to go and touch on something, if you, depending on the time you have on something that's important to that group. Um, you know, that, you know, I'm not just making it up. There are things I believe, but it's a question of what issue do I think they might be yeah. particularly focused on. So yeah. deputy city attorneys, uh, two things that I thought were important for them, just as an example, I don't mean to, you know, hit on them, but the San Diego, uh, city of San Diego, uh, city attorney's office. So mm -hmm. Mara Elliott's office, but this is their association. And they've got quite a few lawyers and they do both criminal and civil, but most people in prosecution, they, oh, the city attorney does misdemeanor crimes in San Diego, which is true. They have, that's their criminal division, but they have a whole nother group, a division doing civil work, you know, that represent the city and lawsuits and, you know, uh, 
all kinds of things, whether it be real estate development issues, uh, the Ash Street thing. Those will be city attorneys. So I I tried to at least let them understand that not only do I have background in both criminal and civil, but I realize your office has the whoever I'm talking to here because they're all black boxes. Yeah. uh, So I couldn't. They're not just misdemeanor deputies. Um, There are civil lawyers out there, too. And, you know, I have an understanding of that. Uh, that I hope is of some benefit to folks like you. Um, and then to even speak to the criminal lawyers who are all doing misdemeanors is to go, it's so easy, especially as a DA, you're like, okay, homicides, rapes, you know, <laughs> yeah. major felonies, you know, that's what we're about, you know, gang, you know, yeah. stuff. Yeah. And that seems to be where you percolate up to. But, uh, you know, I did a bunch of misdemeanors. Of course, we all did as DAs. In outline portion. So I was I did most of my misdemeanor work in the South Bay. In fact, my trial team leader back then when I first did my first jury trials, um, DUIs and assault, you know, simple assault cases. My trial team leader was none other than Summer Stefan. Wow. Yeah. So I've I've known Summer for 30 years and uh, think the world of her, by the way. And um, and I think the feeling is mutual. She needs to I think I indicated needs to be neutral here given the yeah she's got a deputy da in the race but she's i I guess i would say anyone who wants to know what she thinks me give her a call uh we've known each other a long time um so um but with the the criminal attorneys what i want them to know is i get that what you're doing is important you know i'm not just oh da like you know Low-level misdemeanor. I did that when I was a young deputy. Now I'm, a re, you know, a real trial lawyer. Mm-hmm. No, you're actually doing trials that, quite frankly, are some of the most difficult trials we have. You know, when I had a, a homicide case, I got a dead body. You know, that's going to get shown in one form or another. A jury's going to say, okay, someone's dead. Someone committed a crime here. I mean, we're, we're pretty far down the path mm-hmm. of now have a DV case where there's conflicting testimony. There's no real injury, allegation of a slap or a kick or whatever. And try to win that beyond reasonable doubt. That's the he said, she, he said, she said it stuff. It is. And that's hard. It is. Those are tough trials. Yeah. Um, and... You know, I get that. And that's why I wanted them to know that I know that I'm not going to give misdemeanors short shrift because you're working your tail off to prove your case. And the same same for the defense lawyer and the right. misdemeanor side um, that as a judge, if I'm sitting in you know, presiding over a misdemeanor trial and you're handling it, I get that I've done. I know how hard those can be, you know, doing a DUI that may seem kind of clear, except it comes out. And I had one of these that the young sailor who wanted to be a SEAL. And he got on the stand. He testified in an effort to show why he couldn't have drank as much as they thought he was drinking. <laughs> it was because he was about to, you know, commence Bud's training, and he knew that this would throw his, his whole dream away. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of what the facts show, I got a couple of, you know, people in that jury going, oh, my God, am I really going to take away this kid's dream? Mm. For one mistake. Mm. And of course, trying to get them over that. You know, it's not like, well, someone's dead here. No, he drove home and he got pulled over. No harm, no foul, really. We, forget, you know, put aside, we all know the dangers of DUI and all that. But here's a guy, nothing bad happened, and he's going to lose his life's dream, you know? And 
trying to convince the jury to get beyond that and just rule mm-hmm. on the law. I mean, that's tough. It is. And I get it. Yeah. I get it. And so that's what I would try to talk to them real quick about. My experiences in that on both sides, the misdemeanor criminal trials and the civil work, that I get it. And Man, it's, uh, it's tough. You're right. It is hard. It is hard. It's much yeah. harder than, you know, and I, I've said that to them. I mean, you know, I, I – <laughs> Uh, in a different phrase I've talked about, I've done, because I've done enough of, you know, I've done homicide, I've done elder abuse, serious elder abuse cases, and insurance fraud. I said, I'll tell you, uh, difficulties, walk into a jury trial with the client is, you know, I don't want to pick on anyone, Geico Insurance, because someone defrauded the insurance company. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you got jurors going... Oh, the insurance company? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to really lose a lot of tears for them. Yeah. And then roll into an elder abuse case where the victim is being rolled in in a wheelchair. I've won already. Yeah, right. (laughs) right. Almost. Um, It's, you know, it's understanding, you know, you deal with whatever case you've got. Some have natural affinities, you know. Like I said, a murder case, people see a dead body. I mean, and if if you're a defense lawyer, you know, the— the difficulty there is getting past, I get it. This is horrific. Someone died, but it wasn't my client. And you can't just jump to conclusions and convict my client of this incredible offense if unless there's sufficient evidence. Right. Um, notwithstanding how hard this is, this, you know, I, you know, had a case, uh, one murder case with my two witnesses. Uh, and one of them ended up not even being a witness because she wouldn't talk, was a... I think I have this six and eight or eight and ten. Uh, six and eight year old kids of the mother. Oh, shot dead in her front door. Oh, yeah, by a woman who was a mo- going through modeling school at John Robert Powers, you know, modeling. <laughs> but she had some gang connection. You know, and this was not a per se gang case, and apparently there, you know, was in a neighborhood where people, you know, get territorial, all this, someone parked in someone's parking space that, and that led to being dissed, disrespected in one form or another. And this woman came to the door. I was going to say allegedly, but she's now still in prison, uh, having been convicted, uh, came to the door, knocked on it. The 10 year old or eight year old boy answered the door and she just said, go get your mommy. He walked away and the mom and the little girl walked out and the mom got, you know, within the door, 357 Magnum, two rounds of the chest. Oh, yeah. Um, And then she left. So the little girl who saw it, I mean, I couldn't get her to say her name. I mean, she was six. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I had to put her on the stand. And believe me, my most difficult decision in that case was could I actually put these kids on the stand? I mean, they've already been traumatized. Yeah. And but I can't prove this case without them. Right. I mean, because if I don't even call them, I can't get up and say I would call the kids. But, you know, that'd be hard. You can't do that. It's where are the kids? Then the jury starts saying maybe they saw something the prosecutor doesn't want you to hear or something like that. So you you almost got to go through the drill. But it's not easy because I knew that, you know, the new trauma I'm putting these little kids through. Um and this little girl couldn't say a word. And so then yeah. we excused her. And for my strategic purposes, it did what I had it to do, which is I get it. She's there and she's so traumatized. She can't even speak. That's what the jury needed to know. It still pained me. You know, I was able to get her aunt to sit in the courtroom with her. during. You know, so we did some things to try to alleviate it. But, you know, that's still rest. I mean, this is 
got to be 20 years ago, more. Um, it still sits with me. Um, and the little boy came in. And he, too, is, you know, similar. But he's, you know, I had to get him to testify, was this the same woman who who knocked on that door that day? And, you know, I we talked, you know, I did a little roundabout with him, talking about how the day and what he was doing. He was with his father. And then he came in the house. The father was still in the garage. And um, it came up to that point where I said, and then did you answer the door? Yes. Someone knocked on the door. And, you know, you can tell he's getting more and more quiet. Yes. I said, do you see her in the courtroom today? And he kind of glanced and he wouldn't answer. And so I asked him again and he did kind of the same thing. And then I walked over and positioned myself in the well because I'm allowed to move between him and the defendant. So he couldn't see her. He could only see me. Right. And I said, it's okay. Do you see her in the courtroom? And then I, I think I even had to do it again. They had this even on the TV. And I said, son, it's okay. If you see her today, simply point her out for the judge and this jury. And he kind of picked up his hand. He's, she's just sitting right behind you. That's Mara. And, you know, I, his aunt gasped in the courtroom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, and I come away from that going, again, I'm, I'm pained with, I hope my my takeaway, maybe I'm, kind of, you know, making myself feel better is that he felt like he had some role in vindicating his mom. Um, I hope, I mean, but I, I, I never, I, I whisked him off the stand right after that. And, um, and even that we had other evidence that needed to come in and it was, it was a six week homicide trial, but you know, this is where I go back to, this is, these courts are real, real life, real stuff, real emotions, real people. And it doesn't end when they walk out of the courtroom. This is their life. And, um, you know, that's the beauty of it and the intensity of it in, in all of that. It's, um, it's not a TV show that ends at, you know, 10 o'clock, you know, I mean, yeah. so it's, uh, you know, there are times and you finish something like that. I mean, even Anne back then, the kids were little. Um, she knew when I was starting that trial, magically a trip to go visit her mom and to Seattle came up. I'm I'm taking the kids. We're going to Seattle. And I'm like, oh, OK, that's probably a good idea because yeah. I'm out of commission from, oh. you, you know, that from beginning to end, I mean, I'm in the office. I come home, sleep, get up, go right back. You're just and, immersed in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all you think about. And it's um, a bit of a young person's game. I mean, you know, you do that for years and years. I mean, there reaches a point where I can only do so many. I did, one year, I did 16 trials in one year. I mean, it was, Ooh. yeah, felon, all felony trials. I mean, I couldn't do that again. I mean, I got to the point to the end of the AG's term where, one or two a year was plenty for me. Um, That's intense. Yeah, yeah. It's you can only go that long and be effective. I, I mean, God bless some of these folks who are you know career prosecutors and defense lawyers are still doing maybe not quite those numbers, but doing you know the public defender in particular. I mean, they just keep going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and largely losing most of the time. Right. I mean, as a defense lawyer, having had a guilty verdict in a case. That was another six-week trial against this guy, Bill Mitchell. He mm-hmm. was the number two up in Riverside, big fraud case that my client was insistent. You know, he fired his first lawyer, and then they came to know of me and called me in to try. He wanted to go to trial. And um, 
So we went into this case uh, very convoluted. It was all about understanding how the community college system works in its funding through what we call uh, full-time equivalent student hours. And that's how they get funding. Mm -hmm. Well, what they did is they ran, uh, there was a police academy. And by the way, my client was a vice president of Riverside Community College at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, the police academy is there through the CHP. Well, he and two partners, all three of them are former sheriff's deputies, you know, so they have that background. And they came up with this great idea is if when they're going through the academy, they can basically just fill up this paperwork, which were nothing more than like evals, you mm-hmm. know, like, oh, is this course good? Yeah, 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 sign your name, boom. And then they submitted it to Palavar Community College out in the desert, and they got an associate's degree on top of finishing the, the, the academy for nothing more than filling out this paperwork. And so their attendance numbers went up. And these guys got paid a, f- a percentage of all the f- equivalent student hours that were going to Oh, the funding that was going to Palavar Community College, because for every credit that they're giving, they're getting paid. They're getting funding from the state. Right. right. And then these guys were paid their consulting fee. Oh, wow. And so as I said to him, look, at the end of the day, here's what the jury's going to hear. You're currently being paid and salaried well by the community college. And you ran this little thing on the side and made a million dollars of government money in a year. And he did. I said, we're in trouble from day one. I don't care how many dances I do, how many ways I try to spin that, you know, technically all they're hearing is, and you got an extra million dollars of government money on top of it all for doing nothing more than having your, your two guys go here and sign the paper and half the time mm-hmm. it wasn't even filled out correctly. Um, so that's what we dealt with. And I said to him, we were... So I end up with this Bill Mitchell, who's number two under Rod Pacheco, was the DA up there. Bill was, at the time, in charge of the whole Indio division, which is the largest part of Riverside. But he held on to this case because those other two, um, you know, we had a three-defendant case. Well, he's decided I'm not going to pass this off, and he's a stand-up guy. Um, Is probably the most noted prosecutor handling no-body murder cases. You know, a murder oh. case where they never find the body. Wow, that's a he's, skill. He's got more experience doing that than anybody, certainly in the state of California. But he held on to this big fraud case. And uh, so I come into the case when they've been dealing with it for a year and a half, trying to resolve it, whatever. Um, and I get called because they're telling him you've got to plead this out. And he got all ticked off at his defense lawyer. And I got to call someone and said, you know, I referred your name to this guy because I was doing the work up in Riverside. So I go up there, and he wants to hire me, and I said, fine. And he's like, you know, I said, you want to try this case, then we can try it. I am a trial lawyer. I can do that. I said, this is a difficult case. I mean, I can, I think I laid that out. I said, from day one, you can, we got grand jury transcripts. We've got all this stuff. We can lay all this out, but at the end of the day, you made a million dollars on top of your salary for really doing nothing more. And it's all government money, too. Right. Um, I said, that's a huge hurdle. And it's going to be very tough to uh, to get over. And so we end up going in. Both of those guys ended up pleading out and testifying against him. So it got oh. even worse. Now. Oh. He, so he dug his heels. He dug in his heels. The night I think we were going into trial, this guy, Bill Mitchell, said, look, I can make this offer. And that's it. And so I, I tell him, because I have to, I said, here's what Mr. Mitchell has offered. Um, 
to plead to this count. You can get it ultimately reduced to a misdemeanor, blah, blah, blah. And he said, so you think I need to plead? I said, I didn't say that. I said, you hired me to try this case. And you fired your last guy simply because he told you you should plead. I said, here's what I'll tell you. This deal offer is not only as good as it's going to get. It's as good an offer as I would have ever envisioned in this case. I mean, if you, if I'd come in cold, I'd say that's as good it could, as it could ever get. And he said, so you're saying I should plead? I said, no, that's your decision. I said, you hired me. I'm not going to convince you to plead because you specifically hired me to try it. You have to decide whether this – I've told you how difficult this is going to be. And he said to me, um, he said, Pete, I just don't think what we did constituted this crime. And I went back and forth with him and, well, this is how they're going to prove it and this is what they're going to lay out. And uh, he said, you know, I think a jury will see through this. I said, okay, I've done enough of these to think yeah. that's a far cry. Um, he said, so you do think I should plead? I said, I'll say it again. <laughs> I mean, this is a, these are, yeah, but yeah. these are until you sit down and I remember it like it was yesterday in a in a little restaurant. We, I mean, with my client who's literally looking with his feeling like his life is on the line, and to some degree it was. Everything he was doing is a big uh, member of a, a large Christian church and had a lot of following. You know, a lot of support. Was a well liked guy. He knew he'd. You know, if he got convicted um, of a, especially of a felony, well, and it would have been a felony, he's going to lose his real estate license, which is what he was now doing, and on and on and on. So, um, you know, I, I get it. And you're sitting there, right, having so what, what happened? So I told him that, and he said, Pete, if this jury convicts me, at least 10 years from now, I can still look at my son. And tell him I, I wouldn't admit to something I didn't think I did. And that's most important. I said, well, I think you've answered the question. Mm -hmm. Swear the jury. And six weeks of trial later, he was convicted. Hmm. And, uh, you know, and it ended up being worse because, well, because he got convicted of pretty much everything. But part of the story is this Bill Mitchell and I went at it for six weeks very good trial lawyer. I'd like to think I can hold my own, but we, I mean, he had a strong case and, right. and we contested it to the, I contested him on everything. I mean, motions, you name it. Um, fast forward years and years later, I now have lunch with Bill regularly. He's endorsed me. He's my, nice. you know, my point is when I tell lawyers about this is, you know, you can fight like no tomorrow for your client. But the civility thing has to still be there. Of course. And good lawyers don't get caught up in the nuances of their cases. And and that's my example is I, I don't think I tried a more difficult, a more testy case back and forth for six weeks um, with anyone. And to this day, we're, you know, really close. Um, the, the the epilogue is he got convicted. We go to sentencing. Mitchell was hell-bent on, I want, eight to ten years in prison. Um, and I brought in a slew of his supporters, preachers in sentencing, and I got him probation. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And so Mitchell likes to say, yeah, I won the war. Or no, I won the battle. You won the war. Yeah. I'd well, say, in the end, you know, your client— got a favorable outcome. He did, you know, when all said and done. I mean, he has a felony conviction that won't go away, but I think he's now because time has passed, I think he, I know he's got his real estate license back cuz he's back 
selling real estate in Riverside County. I'm wow. sure he's doing what a fine. Story. Yeah, you know, and but you live. Did you have to give back the money? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, they had leaned his house and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he, uh, yeah, he um, probably had part of that reduced to a civil judgment that they'll collect on, and I mean, you know, they'll get their money back over time. But uh, you know, he got what he wanted. I only took about ten years out of my life, um, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I, I felt like I did what I needed to do is my client wanted the process. And he didn't want me to, you know, convince him to plead guilty. He didn't want some threat. He, if anyone was going to say he was guilty, he wanted 12 people from the community to say so. Okay. And they did. And, uh, and he could live with that. And, yes, he, you know, the epilogue to the epilogue, he's stupid. Uh, when all <laughs> – you know, when all – he gets because he's and he and he was ordered to be some six months in jail, but because I knew they were so impacted at the time that he was going to get kicked out pretty soon. Well, he's also a former uh, Riverside Sheriff's deputy, so they're not going to put him in jail in Riverside. So that where do they send him? Well, they have a joint agreement with Big Bear, oh, Big wow. Bear Lake. There's a, a little sheriff station up there. That's San Bernardino County, right? So he was sentenced. He he was sentenced for his six months that might last, you know, a month, two months before he gets the early kick up at Big Bear. And up at Big Bear, you know, they have sort of a jail. And in the morning, they kick you out. Go, okay, go out, and you just hang out in the court. In the, it's right there on the main drag. You wouldn't even know it. Really, there's picnic tables and stuff up, and you just sat out there and hang out. <laughs> And I'm like, Bill, you're just going to have to. And his wife could come up and visit him. I mean, for the brief period, I said, just lay low. They have a few rules, one of which is no cell phones. And one of the times, unbeknownst to me, I wasn't there, of course. Uh, I did visit him up there because I have a home up there. So I go by mm-hmm. and there's Bill sitting out of the pig. Too. It's, it's all, I mean, right on the main drag. I think they've added a fence now. That wasn't even there before because um, these are, you know, non-serious offenders and there's only like half a dozen maybe people there so can you like pull over and talk to them you, you could but the, the deputies come out and you can't come in here yeah you know? yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and they are told you're not to go out and communicate with the public i mean mm-hmm. you can hang out here talk amongst yourselves or have visitors um and that's why i think they eventually put a fence up it's just a cyclone fence around that little property but you'll see it if you ever drive down big bear um but he had his wife up, and at one point, I don't know if it was his son's birthday or whatever, she she passed his phone to him. Uh-oh. He gets on the phone to say happy birthday or hello or whatever. Well, they catch him with it. Next thing I know, your, your client's being transferred down to Central Valley, oh. which is – and because he's a deputy sheriff in ad, administrative segregation. Oh, so solitary. Solitary. In a oh. nasty prison. I mean, this is a nasty jail. These are usually holding. And he was at a resort. He was at Kickback City. Yeah. And I go, oh my God, the phone. You couldn't wait a month? Oh. Send a note. Well, not only is he foolish, so is his wife. Well, a- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, took that case up on appeal, I, you know, because he wanted to. I knew we wouldn't win. We made some good arguments, I thought. Um, but in the process, uh, you know, and now I'm doing other things like working with the assistant sheriff who was a female of Riverside who is telling me that, look, I said, I thought we could get him out of here. I thought they were going to kick. Now he's in AdSec. You know this. She's like, I hear you, but there's some politics at play here. And we went dancing back and forth. 
and there's a system where you can log on and uh, you know basically you'll get a text alert from the jail saying so and so has been released. You could do that for anybody you wanted to. Who does that mostly? Your victims want to mm-hmm. know if their rapist gets released or something. Yeah. Um, and so I just put myself on that and um, just to be on, so I know because now I'm like, my God, what if they move him? Because they'll tell you that too. Um, and we're going back and forth, and his wife's calling me crying. Uh, you know, I can't even get into a see him because there's limited visiting hours, on and on. And I've tried this. I'm trying now. I'm calling her. I've written letters, and I'm telling her, I don't know. They're telling me you're just going to have to be patient. And then, like the next day, boom, your client's you know client's released. Oh, I'm like, and she called me up. Oh my god, I just got a call. I said, <laughs> go get him. Yeah, and he was out. I mean, so I don't know how much time. Between Big Bear and then I, he might have been another month in that nasty ass. And I went up and visited him there. It's oh, it's awful because now we're behind. He's in a little alcove, bulletproof, bulletproof oh. glass. Yeah, I can hardly hear him. It's oh, awful. But um, a month, month and a half that he spent there, and, and then he got this kick. But it, I mean, there was something going on with the sheriff's department. Somebody was ticked off because they knew him and didn't like what happened and they didn't want to allow, you know, the early release. I mean, there was just this behind the scenes stuff that should have no play, but it does. Right. Um, But out he went. Um, But so Mitchell and I still talk about that case to this day. Yeah. I'll bet. Yeah. It's uh, I think that was no, he's continued to try again. Then he ended up down because Rob Pacheco lost in the next election and Bill, because he he was the number two in the office. He was now in an appointed position. Guess what? He just lost his job. Oh, he did? Well, when uh, when Pacheco lost, Bill, as an appointed assistant DA, gets the boot by the new DA. Says, sorry, I'm cleaning the house. The top positions are gone. Oh. You're no longer a deputy DA with the protections. You're at will. See you later. Bye. And so he's out of a job. Bonnie, he was lecturing. Bonnie DeManis at the time was the DA. Said, "Why don't you come down here? We can get a contract position for you," which he did. And I mean, again, that's probably now fourteen, fifteen years ago. He so he went down there, did some contract, and he they hired him on full time, and and now he's literally the chief of the largest division the DA has, North County. Wow, yeah, he's he's their chief, and has been there for quite a while is you know he's well regarded and he's a great yeah. trial lawyer and all but so he's things of and he's the most low-key guy you know i'll just so you know i mean aren't you retired eh, no i'm still feeling like i'm doing some good stuff so yeah i'm like god bless you buddy <laughs> <laughs> so. wow this is uh this is amazing yeah, you get me going, John. There's, I know, you know you're going. Uh, but what's where are we now? We're at three. Actually, we may have just set a new record. Uh, well, you know what? If, <laughs> as long as we're close, we're, we're going for it. Right? So it's yeah, it's three hours and thirty three minutes right wow. there. We've been going on the wow. live stream. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I probably should uh, move onward and upward. And what time is it exactly? Bottom right corner. Stop. Five fifty three. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm. I'm not due there for another hour, so... Uh, oh, so we can go for 50 more minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I'll hit the floor first. Yeah, me too. I think. Yeah. No, but you, this has been great. It is a, a blast. I yeah. can't thank you enough. This yeah. is, uh, you know, certainly for me personally, it's awesome, but I really do believe this is... I'd like to figure out how we can, you know, keep 
finding a way to elevate this. I, you know, there is no reason why with you here that every city council, and I know you have city council candidates who have co- keep come in, and now yeah. I think it's kind of like, oh, you got to go talk to John Riley. Yeah. But I'd, I'd love to see, I don't know if you'd ever, and that becomes a whole different ballgame, really outside even yours, but I'm thinking like a, a debate if there ever was one between city council. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be fun. I would know, be happy to moderate it. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. Brian Pepin. I'll, I've gotten to know Brian pretty well, and I know he, uh, who is it? Hiram Soto. And I know yeah. he's you've had him on here. No, or? he's he's chimed in on the live stream. OK. And then Pete Neal met with Hiram. But I, I, I had a cup of coffee with Brian yeah. uh, a number of months ago. He's a good guy, you know. Yeah. And so is Hiram. Right. Um, so to have those two, you know, try to have someone like you who's a, would be a great moderator and kind of facilitator to have a discussion about the issues that matter out here. Yeah. I mean, instead of these. You know, this is what I just keep seeing. You know, people, as I say to people, if I can reach people and then beg them to, if they're at all inclined, to then reach out to their networks. And even then, it's, I know the vast majority of people are like, I didn't even know you were running. Uh, You know, and I'm going as fast as I can, trying to talk as many people (laughs) as I can. But you begin to realize, my God, this county's big. And there's a lot of people. And, um, what just pains me is people go, uh, you know what? I see a name and I see a three-letter designator because that's – or three-word, which is the ballot designation, yeah. which is what you're limited to. Right. And it has to be your current position or what you've done in the last full calendar year. So I can't put – in fact, some judges even suggest to me, I think you'd still qualify to write deputy attorney general. And I said, you know, I'm just not comfortable writing that when I'm not – currently one right now and that's only a few months removed but i'm not doing that um so i've come up with chief trial counsel or uh, no criminal trial prosecutor because i've did that for the last 12 months Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day name deputy district attorney oh okay that's yeah people do that i'm really sure they do that's worth votes and i want to go but 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 (laughs) (laughs) you know as i say to people good experience i did all that Plus, and, you know, as this friend Rear Admiral McGrath writes me, he goes, Pete, when I read the ballot statements, you know, what Chris, that's his name, uh, will sound like is what he'll be someday. Or no, you sound like what Chris might be someday if he keeps, you know, working for a whole lot of time. And kind of like the big brother or whatever it is. And I go, Pat. If I knew that the vast majority of the people in this county read those ballot statements, I'd go, I'm, I'm okay. I just don't know that. Um, I don't know how many will stop with name, three words. Some may not even – some vote and don't even get to the three words. Don't even get to the three words. They just go, oh, that guy sounds like a nice name. Yeah, yeah. And that's – as I say to people, the three things that bother me most – the second worst is don't vote at all. Right. Because, um, you know, you're just giving away a vote. And what right. you've really done is give other people a greater vote than you because their vote is worth more. Yeah. It's if you don't proportionately vote. more impactful. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, the second worst. But the really worst is what I call the Del Mar racetrack mode. I'll just bet on the color. 
You know, red, green, blue. I'll pick a name. Oh, I knew a guy named Pete once. He was a jerk, so I'm not voting for him. Yeah, I, know. I, I mean, <laughs> or they look at the party designation and you they know. won't see that. Yeah, not designated anywhere in this. Well, not race. yours. It's not because it's no, nonpartisan. That's right. That's right. That, they do that a lot, which also pains me. We've gotten to this and this, and never the twain shall meet. Well, some states have that what straight party vote. Yes, where you can just say I'm just just pick one of the parties, and then it goes one party, right down the all, list. All of it. Yeah. You know, like one one Chad punch and you're done. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, it it is crazy because we're, you know, (laughs) we've heard all the debates going back, whether we should even allow all the citizens to vote because they're not smart enough. Uh, You know, maybe that's what the Electoral College was all about. Um, But at the end of the day, that's what it is. And I just go, so just do a little bit. Right. Just a little bit. I, I I know it takes time, but. You know, you get the little booklet. Just read it. It's not that long. 200 words. It's not that hard. To me, this is what's amazing about our conversation is because I never have seen this much information and content from someone for judge. No. Um, And you won't. Because they're just so stealth. Right. You know, and and that's why it was always so confusing for me when I had to vote for judge. It was hard. Right. To figure out. And that's what I think is wonderful about our conversation is we're getting giving people a chance to know you and know what your principles are, you know, where you stand, how you see the world. Now people can make a really informed vote. Well, at least, you know, vis-a-vis me, uh, if they either like or don't like me, um, the, the question is really you're going to have to pick somebody or you choose not to vote. And so – uh, it's not just knowing one. And, and you know, look, at the end of the day, people say, I don't really care. I, I know you. And that's where I'm going. OK. I mean, that works for me. What in the most ideal sense, read about all three. Well, yeah. Yeah. And you decide then which or get to know all three as best you can. That's a much harder pull because not everyone has this opportunity. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you'd give an opportunity to anyone who. Uh, any of my opponents who want to come yes. up here, but um, that's a standing offer to every candidate. There you go. Yeah. It's uh, you know, and you look down the street, uh, as you probably saw it just down the street from you. Rebecca Cantor has a sign up. Oh yeah, and you probably don't know anything about her. I'm not going to weigh in on that race. That's the other judicial seat. Oh, so the, she's, that was I was going to ask. Yeah, she's not in my race. Okay, um, she's running against a gentleman, Mike Murphy, and. Um, who's a deputy attorney general and um, Michael Fleming, who's a deputy public defender and uh, Rebecca is a U.S. attorney. And and so now, you know, more than you knew before, which is who are even in that race. Right. But the question is, who is the best? I'm not going to weigh in. Certainly not here on that. Um, (laughs) But there you have it in mine. I I mean, I tell you, it's a a deputy district attorney with 14 years as as law school deputy district attorney. I mean, he when I left the DA's office, he was still in law school. So um, uh, that's what he's done. And that's good experience. I have it, but it is what it is. Uh, The other is a traffic commissioner um, who handles traffic court. Um, And he likes to say he wears the same robe as a superior court judge. And I thought... Yeah, it's a little more. If you want a promotion, go ask the governor. Yeah. Um, but, you know, look, he, he does do important work and he's a, a really nice man. I know him. Um, but, you know, that's what's in my race. And, um, you know, I try to focus on me and what it represents. And, you know, I think I touched on the one, you know, 
why it's important that we get things right as a prosecutor and at each step and following the rules and all that kind of stuff. So, um, um, you know, as long as people look a little bit, I'm happy. <laughs> well, we still got some comments coming in. No way. Uh, They're probably like, I came back. Okay, here it is. It says, Yuri says, I was just checking to watch the replay because I was at work. A new record, John. Mr. Murray, I am very impressed with you, sir. You have my vote. Okay, so we're, we're hey, getting there one notch Yuri, at a time. You know, you, I, you know, I think I've gotten a second vote today. You're number two. <laughs> and I, that that makes it all worth it. But see, you know what record he's referring to is the 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 podcast length because we're now at three hours and forty two minutes. That's ah, the record. Yes, I, I well. <laughs> You know, if I've got nothing else going for me, I've set the record at John Riley's, at least for now. I'm sure it'll be broken, and maybe you will come in and uh, break it yeah. at some point. <laughs> um, and what does he say here? Yeah, John Carson. Yeah, it was John Carson. It was my guest. Wow. That day. It was in 2018. So, But all uh, good. Yeah, I hope that's a good thing, Yuri, uh, when all said and done. I, I wasn't here to break records, but hey, what the heck, you know? <laughs> That's a, you got to make your mark somehow. Yeah, that's records are made to be broken. Absolutely. And look, I don't know who's uh, the fact that John has stayed with me this long or I keep talking. Who knows? OK, well, let's let's wrap it up. Yes. OK. But um, you gave me by the way, you gave me a sign. I'll put it in my front yard. So Ex- excellent. All good. All good. You know what? That means so much because that means John Riley's on board and that means your neighbors will know that. I hope yeah. that's a good thing. No, it is I a think good thing. it is a good thing. It is a good thing. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, whatever. You just got to p- keep picking up those votes one at a time. You know, we just keep going until the until the clock strikes midnight. Uh, yeah. You know, whenever that may be. But, On June 7th. But, June 7th, technically, yes. But um, yeah, you, everyone will mostly have their minds made up yeah. by mid-May. You know, I'm intrigued by, and I won't go on, but I'm intrigued just from the politics side of it, how this all plays out, you know, with these universal mailed, mailed yeah. ballots. Uh, we will be able to track when people vote. Right. Um, I have access to a system that will show me who hasn't voted yet um, and by registered voters. So you, you'll you'll get a sense of how quick people vote. Uh, do they vote right away? Put it in the mail. Uh, maybe they vote right away and it sits on their credenza waiting until June 7th and the hand deliver it. Who knows? And then the other side of it is voter turnout. What will that look like in a in a, a race that, let's face it, has very little interest, not just my race. I mean, all of a sudden, this race is one that someone might because no one's paying attention to anything else. Governor? No, no one's contesting him to speak of. Attorney general, there's a primary to see who will take on Rob Bonta. Um there's senators running, right? Is it is it state senator or is state it senator, U.S. senator? Yeah, no, there's state senator, not U.S. senator. State senator uh, and state assembly. And there's, you know, a cast of thousands uh, on, I don't know if it's quite that much. But, you know, there's, they're just, these are primary votes uh, or a primary voting session that I don't think will get an enormous amount of attention. Right. And so how low will that be versus... Every single person getting that vote, we saw a little bit of that because the first time they did it was in the recall, the governor's recall. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the the first uh, actually in the 2020 election, and that was weird, the, the November election that was mailed in because we were now in COVID. And then the governor recall was probably the first kind of 
insight to how responsive people are to the but you know that's kind of a quirky vote all by itself yeah so this will be the most you know the first real normal process with everyone having a vote does that elevate voter turnout people are like well i got a ballot i'll vote i would assume it will but maybe not as much as people think it intriguing to see is really the only reason yeah. i bring it up if from if you just stand outside of it you're not personally invested <laughs> like me <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what the voter turnout looks like how soon people vote i mean uh you know i hear depending on who you listen to some people oh yeah you know get it mail it in right away but then you got to track it because they might change your vote yeah, so i'm like oh boy here we go <laughs> others are saying no do not mail it in you need to hold on to it until June 7th and then watch it placed into the box. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. Do you really – I guess some people think they're I, – I go – I take – what I've been doing lately is uh, I, I have a business personal mailbox yeah. at the Postal Annex next to Target yeah. in Poway. And then the Registrar of Voters has one of their red voter boxes there and a representative from the Registrar of Voters – and so I just drop it in yeah. there. So yeah. it doesn't even go through the U.S. mail system. No, no. It and goes right to the ROV. And depending on certain groups you talk to, that's what they think is the one, the best way to do it. Yeah. And I'm not like paranoid about it. I just happen to go in there all the time. It's, so I may as well just convenient drop it and, and you do it. Yeah. They've reduced polling places. So the days of going down, I don't know if you went there, uh, if you had that, depending on how they, we used to go to Painted Rock. Did you go to Painted Rock? Um, no, I used to actually go around the corner to one of the uh, retirement homes near the hospital. Oh, okay. And then, but then they changed it, and we had to go all the way down to St. Gabriel's Church. Oh, wow! Because they changed the precinct boundaries and yes, everything. Yes. Um, and I, for the longest time, was always like to go and vote on the day of. Me too. Because I just sort of like the process. It's just the process. I like and, it. But and every year the lines were shorter and shorter. Yeah. Because. Everyone was voting by mail. Right. And then you'd hear the stories about people in, you know, some other state waiting in line for six hours uh, and in the, in the heat and they got to bring them water and food. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that is not at all what's going on no, here. No, we never had that. And, um, and, and again, uh, well, no one checks your ID, although I don't care about that issue so much, but I know a lot of people do, a but no one does. Do. No. They just say, what's your name and what's your address? They go down the list. Oh, that's you. Okay, right. here you go. Right. Then you had to sign. You had to uh, sign, but, and then you're done. So, and they check those signatures. Mm-hmm. So there so is some It's kind of like the, the designated hitter rule is that I was a holdout wanting pitchers to hit because I like the process and the tradition uh, and the, and the ceremony, pomp and circumstance of the ceremony. And now I'm like, I'm just going to evolve. You know, I'm like, yeah. I'm in with a DH and now I'm voting by I mail. Got it. That's how you're going. <laughs> yeah. It's I'm the same way. I liked going down to my little place at Painted Rock. Uh, and I think one year, for whatever reason, they moved in someone's home in the garage. I just like the feel of that. The it does. Community yeah. thing. But um, I suspect this will, because I don't think they'll have a voting, they've reduced the, the polling places right. down. So there'll only be kind of central ones. Because so, they need them far less because so many yeah, vote by mail. Yeah. So I suspect I'll be dropping it in the mail. Yeah. Even though that's okay. <laughs> okay. We, Off we go. Are we at four hours yet? No, not. But no. I think we, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. You, okay. Yeah. Good luck to you in your uh, campaign. Let's Thanks. stay in touch. You know where to reach me. All right. Right on. PeteForJudge.com. That's it. PeteForJudge.com. Okay. Thanks a lot. See y'all. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor. Subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. 
go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.